Today's episode of the Ryan Rosillo Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by State Farm. Getting great car and home insurance from State Farm at a surprisingly great rate. That's like drafting a player that becomes an all-pro, the real deal. State Farm agents provide personalized service so you can customize your insurance to fit your needs. Like a GM putting together their very own roster, you need a team that supports you. Everybody wants to be supported. State Farm's got a great one. In addition to agency, award-winning mobile app helps manage coverage, pay bills, file claims, and more. With a great price and even greater service, State Farm goes from strength to strength. Choose insurance that always brings its A-game. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is presented to you by Lululemon. The perfect pants do exist, and you can get them at Lululemon. The men's ABC pants are shockingly comfortable and breathable, and they come in tons of different styles and fabrics, all made to make you look and feel good. Whether you're in the office, at the gym, cheering in the stands, or just relaxing at home, these pants are in a league of their own. Buy a pair today at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Netflix. A gentleman always opens the door for you, but the gentlemen are just as likely to break it down and stash their drugs inside. The Gentleman, based on Guy Ritchie's award-winning film, is a new Netflix series that follows a whole new cast of criminal lords and ladies slumming it in Britain's criminal underworld. Guns out and pinkies up. Don't miss The Gentleman, now playing only on Netflix. Here is the plan for today. This is an awesome show. We got Kevin Clark. We're going to talk some football with him. Also, actor, thespian, Jay Harrington. He was nice enough to say hello to me when I first moved to L.A. and was hanging out at the Santa Monica Equinox. That's the Malibu phase of, of my odyssey out here. And I was like, who's this guy? And he's on SWAT. He's actually like pretty successful. And he's just a totally normal guy. He's from Massachusetts. So I just want to talk to an actor that's that's you know not the DiCaprio level. That's at the level below that, and what that career is like, and everything. So that's going to be a lot of fun, and we'll do some life advice. I can't wait to do these ones with you a little bit later. Uh, there's been a demand for more Kyle. I don't know if that's Kyle forwarding those specific emails to me, uh, but I don't think Kyle is not a seeker of attention. He is not. I would never so do that. You wouldn't. I actually. That's why I'm bringing it up. So I just wanted you, Kyle, to know that. Or no, I want the audience to know that your request for more Kyle has been acknowledged. So you know what we should do is we should do a, a Kyle-specific life advice where it'll be younger dudes instead of me being like, that's a crazy thing. Some of these college kids, like if I had gone a different path, I'm old enough to be their dads. If I were really weird in high school, um, you know. <laughs> Some of you guys would be a few years into your 401k already. So, uh, but that's not the case. That is not the case. And look, if you're 16 and you have a kid in high school, it doesn't necessarily mean you're weird. So all the, all the guys that have kids at 15 and 16 years old, you know, shout out to you. So there you go. Big reminder, Monday night, I think it's going to either drop or it'll be into Tuesday morning. Maybe we're taping it Monday night. Bill Simmons, House, myself, big NBA preview, including the over-unders for all the teams. Um, I did. Somebody did say, man, a lot of these numbers look pretty low. It's like, yeah, that's because we have less games in the regular season. So I was afraid I might pick 30 overs. I'm like, I, I just don't see it. I think they're better than that. I think they're better than 42 wins. You're like, no, no. All right. So again, make sure you subscribe to this podcast, Bill Simmons podcast. We're going to do a massive NBA preview like we do every year. All right. I want to start with just a little quick opening. It's not even a rant, really. This isn't a, a massive thing here because I've, I've been hammering the rants this week. But on the James Harden trade stuff it was pretty funny seeing the timeline now you know two weeks ago i had said i thought simmons was available in trade and the reason i said this because that's what i've been hearing and uh sham said simmons is available and then shams immediately obviously daryl morey 
the GM now, well, not GM, the president of the Sixers, Elton Brand still is uh, technically the GM. It was clear based on the tweets on Thursday that it was, uh, you know, the Sixers have reached out to um, and us and, it, you know, the whole deal. And now we're saying that, you know, Simmons is not available. Okay, first of all, Daryl Morey's never going to say a guy is available. He doesn't owe that to any of us. That's not the job. The job is to answer to his ownership, to make the best deal for his team. But those that, I don't want to mean like, hey, those that are pretty plugged in, there's a difference between the news that you get and then the stuff that you hear. And the rumblings now for a while have been that Simmons is available on Arden Trade. Okay. And that's why I said it and felt comfortable about it. But I'm not going to do on a podcast, hey, Simmons is going to be traded for Harden because things change and you don't really know. And by the way, Houston, with two years of control on Harden, they have more options than maybe you realize. So Harden can sit and demand just Brooklyn. And as we've seen, I don't think the Brooklyn thing matched you know, team for team, but we've also seen historically trades where it didn't look like it matched and they just sort of happen. I think that's where agents get involved a little bit. I'm like, do me a favor here. We'll figure it out a little bit later. There's also agents that will straight up threaten a front office and go, if you don't do this for my guy, I'm going to make sure none of my clients ever sign with you. And if your agency is powerful enough and represents the right people, you can get away with some of that stuff. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on that, that I'll never know about. And, um, that's, that's where I thought this whole thing was important. Now, Woj this morning on ESPN, was talking about how this this deal has been expanded to uh, include potentially more teams, which I think makes sense. Now, some of this is strategic. Sometimes you get a piece of information. And you're like, why is this person sharing this information with me? Okay, well, they're doing it maybe because they want this information out because it helps them. But you got to be around long enough to understand that. Well, you'll get info and be like, I don't really want to share this. Look, I'll tell you three years ago when Kyrie got traded to the Celtics, I got a source who's been terrific on stuff was like, look, this Kyrie thing's not happening winning solves everything he's going to come back and you know Kyrie's different which was a really early prediction on unknowing Kyrie and I almost I can't, I'm so glad I didn't do this I almost tweeted out something where I was like you know senses are that Kyrie's going to be there ready to go camp beginning of the season see how it goes see if everybody gets along they're going to be winning games you know they're close they're still close to competing so you know, this, this thing might blow over. And then he was literally traded, I think less than 24 hours later. And I remember being like, Oh my God. Cause I was telling some of this stuff to, uh, to one of my friends and he's like, what are you going to do? I was like, ah, I don't know. I go, I need to, I would really need to check on this. I go, but this guy's pretty good. And he would know. And he didn't know. And he didn't know. He thought he knew and he didn't know. Um, but as far as the hardened part of this, and this is the other classic one, national guy says Simmons is available for Harden. Local guy in Philadelphia says Simmons isn't available. First of all, it's all semantics, too, because when you say Simmons has not been included in a trade package, well, if a trade hasn't officially been proposed, then you've covered your ass that way. You can say, I never offered him, but you you have these conversations with other teams. You'd be like, hey, would you be willing to do this? I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know might mean yes. Uh, you know, this isn't this isn't like espionage. This isn't treason. You know, there aren't there aren't these hidden tapes to expose somebody for not telling the truth. You have to play the game with the other teams. You also have to play the games, the media, but the national people, the guys that are really, really good and really plugged in a lot of their information they're getting from other teams that are going, hey, you know, who's available. You know what they're trying to figure out. And there may be a third team and all this stuff. So I always thought the Simmons thing was a potential trade there. And that that was pushed more on Philly side. And I don't care what Daryl says. I don't. And I don't blame him. He doesn't owe any of us anything. But if a local reporter in Philadelphia is going to say, 
I talk to say Daryl, or I talk to somebody in that front office and they're denying it. This is where being the local guy, even though you have the advantage of knowing your team better than any of the national guys do, I respect the hell out of anybody that has to be in the beat. And when things are normal in the locker room all the time, putting in all of that time, all of these thousands of hours that you're with just this one team and you know, them inside and out, you're probably more likely to be misled, um, on some of this stuff because you may not be and I don't, I don't mean this as a criticism. You, if you're following one team and locked into it, you may have great sources with that one team, but a lot of times you will find out stuff about a team because you're talking to other teams. And that's where a national guy, and I'm not including myself in that situation, but the national guys, the Woges, those kinds of guys crush it because there are other teams going, Hey, you know, you should check on this. So, uh, that's where we're at. I don't know if he gets traded immediately. I've just, like I've said, I've always felt very comfortable in saying that I think Simmons, that part of it's available for Houston if they want to go ahead and do that deal. Um, the other thing that didn't make any sense, which I've I touched on, is that the price would somehow go down the longer this went for Hart. I don't really believe that. Most people disagree with me. We've already been over it. Um, and then the part where some teams would be scared off because of that article that came out talking about how Harden um, was difficult and everything was on his terms. Um, and there's only two years left. Look, the Celtics should probably not have traded for Kyrie, knowing that in two years he could leave and not sure if he was going to dig being in Boston. Luckily for the Celtics side of it, they didn't give up a ton. There's not this trade or this player running around every night where you're like, I can't believe you gave up that guy for two years of control with Kyrie. But other teams, if they could put a package together, you'll never like sometimes you have to be bold. Some guys are really bold about this. So maybe it isn't Philadelphia, but I've always felt felt Simmons is available and I'm I'm not. I'm not off of that point. And if he doesn't get traded to Philly and everyone in the front office in Philly says Simmons is never available, never available. I'm just, I don't blame you for saying it. I just, I'm not going to believe you. Okay. We have Kevin Clark on all sorts of stuff, how to rebuild in the NFL off the Steelers. The Rams love Cam Newton. Follow up on his earlier story. It's going to be right now. Kevin Clark joins us. The King of slow news day and NFL <laughs> coverage at the ringer. I want to get to your most recent slow news day with Adam Schefter, but sure. we start with uh, with the other stuff. Okay, rebuilding. <laughs> Football. Yeah. yeah. You are a Magic fan, so you know the pain of rebuilding. I don't think in the NBA there's really anything other than do we get draft picks or are we a destination? Right. Do we have assets when the next star is mad, which is really, as I've said for years now, the job of a GM is to have some pieces to even get you in the conversation because there's always a mad superstar and it happens all the time, more often than ever. But in football... We always kind of felt like, hey, figure out the quarterback, get the quarterback. So what do we right. know right now? Because you're writing a piece on this. I love this topic. Yeah. I don't know if it's changing. So take it any direction you want to take it in. So there's a lot more waiting around in the NBA because I think I've studied and talked to the people who have had the best quick building jobs the last couple of years. And I think the way to, to approach this, I know it sounds oxymoronic, is quick but patient, if that makes sense. And it should only take about two years for you to figure it out. Uh, you look at the Buffalo Bills, who took a massive dead cap charge in 2018. A year later, they're in the playoffs. You know, They basically just gutted their entire roster. A year later, they're in the playoffs. Two years later, they're competing in the AFC. The Miami Dolphins did something similar. You have to take your medicine early and you know get all the bad contracts off your books, all that stuff. And I think the biggest part, Ryan, is that the culture starts to build at the beginning of the rebuild. I think in the NBA, there's a little bit more waiting around in the sense that, okay, hey, we're really targeting summer 2022. Or, hey, we are, these guys are coming up or whatever. And in the NFL, I think it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so with, with the Dolphins, in particular, a team I visited last year, I remember 
going to press conferences and a, a reporter there was like, you know, we haven't asked about the games in a month. Like we, we just don't care about the games. We care about the draft and we care about free agency and we care about how this rebuild is going. And I asked Brian Flores when we had a meeting later, I said, Brian, what is it like to coach a team where no one cares about the games? And he wasn't mad at me, but he, he kind of, he got very passionate and was like, you, you go run down and kickoff and, and tell, tell these guys that, that these games don't matter. And you could tell that they were planting the seeds of the rebuild because you need good players, but you also need the culture. Jason Kelsey had an amazing rant this week. Did you see it? Yeah. So he he basically said, nobody in the locker room cares about the future. Nobody in the locker room cares about the draft picks, all that stuff, this whole tanking thing. And I think that the 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 balance you have to take as a GM when you're building is that the roster doesn't care about the future. And so you have to build a culture at the same time you have to build a team. And so I guess if you look at the Colts or you look at the Dolphins, you look at the Bills, or I mean, the Browns are a separate category this year. This is a year where you should not be getting better. But if you are getting better, you've done something right. There is a, a blueprint, um, and, and I think it mostly involves around doing what needs to be done immediately. Again, whether that's getting the bad contracts off, uh, augmenting with vet, uh, augmenting youth with veterans, building building a base with the veterans, excuse me, with the youth, and bringing in flexible veterans, mid-tier veterans. The Bills have done that really well. The Dolphins this year have done that uh, really, really well. Uh, I just think that there's maybe I think there's a lot of lessons that bad NFL teams can learn um, because I think that the NBA style process has been attempted in the NFL. It doesn't work. Contracts are too short. Injuries happen too often. If your rebuild is taking more than two years, you should probably look at your rebuild. In the Dolphins case, the Bills case, and the Colts case, they never got the top overall pick. They never truly tanked. Everyone thought the Dolphins were tanking last year. They were just bad and young and growing. But I think that I, I think that there are just, if you study these teams, there are, you know, 25 to 26 organizations where they might make excuses and, and the teams that are getting better this year are not doing that. And I think you can look to those teams for, for, for lessons on how to get better without tanking, without all that stuff. Whenever it comes to this stuff, right, everybody wants to sound smarter than everyone else, right? Hey, here's our <laughs> philosophy. Here's what we're going to do. And if it works, it works. But a lot of it's luck. It's definitely luck in basketball. Yes. If you yes. land in the wrong year with the right picks, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can have the fourth pick in a good draft or the first pick in a bad draft. And there you go. I also think, and I don't mean this to be hostile, but I think nerds like tanking. Um, I don't <laughs> know what that means. And sometimes I'm super nerdy about stuff. So I'm I'm including myself in the group at sure. times where... From the outside, we want to pretend that we have it figured out when it's so dismissive and basically insulting to the people that have the jobs as if we know better than they do. Now, sometimes we do. Sometimes guys have these jobs and they're really bad. And they execute a plan. Sometimes there are great plans that don't work out. The quarterback thing, this is where I want to stay on it because none of it works unless you have the quarterback. In the same way in the right. NBA, none of it works unless you have one of those special players that really don't come along nearly as often as we'd like to think that they do. So... When Cleveland took Baker one, because I've heard from teams saying, really, the only way to do this to solve it is just keep drafting them. Just keep drafting right. the quarterbacks. Yeah. You know, like if you think you probably know the first year and just because you drafted somebody and say you have a bet, like just draft another guy. Just keep taking swings at this because it's so hard to get one of those players. And I remember talking with a host that said, well, you know what? If that's the case, then the Browns and this was somebody probably trying to be a little bit smarter about it. The Browns should take Baker one and then somebody else four. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, oh, well, that's wait. where they they looked at doing that. Yeah, I know. I, and, the, and I the talked. Guy, that was me. I talked to them about that. That was that was my story. Okay, that's yeah. insane. Yeah. That's where you were moving. <laughs> no, but that's where you were removing the reality yeah. of actually having a quarterback. It wouldn't 
work. The only way it would work is if the other guy got hurt and absolutely sucked. So I, I don't right. know if you, so you, when you wrote that piece, cause then act, actually became a topic on the radio show that I was sure. doing. I don't know how you say to the guys like, Hey, get after it. Um, or maybe, I don't know, is re are reps overrated or do you have to, like, I just can't imagine that you'd have two personalities that go, yes, this is absolutely going to work because for one to work, you're completely stunning the other. And I don't know. I, I mean, take it again where you want to, because it sounds like you sure. may sneaky still believe in that philosophy. I don't believe in that philosophy. The Dallas Cowboys did something a little bit similar where they obviously drafted Troy Aikman and they also used a supplemental draft pick in 1989 on Steve Walsh, the former Miami quarterback. So they did in quick succession have two first round quarterbacks. Okay. And Jimmy Johnson knows what he's doing. I think that where the Browns are coming from in that particular situation is that they had the biggest problem in sports, which was they're the Browns and they need a quarterback. And you've seen the jersey with the names of all the Browns quarterbacks and just the fact they couldn't solve that for 20 years. And I think they looked at that draft and said, let's we have the draft capital. Let's end this once and for all. And it's funny because I don't even know who they would have taken with the second. I don't I, you know, Baker is is okay this year the ball is coming out cleaner he's still one of the worst uh passers in football under pressure we can get to that later but i think that the i think it's about throwing resources when you have it at the biggest problem you have and that's why i think they were looking at that i don't think it's a good philosophy and i also think that getting the quarterback although it's the most important thing, competence at quarterback is the most important thing well, you can win without a super duper star. I mean, look at look at the damn Rams. Okay, even though oddly enough that Goff was the first overall pick, but Goff is was you know is is D Dak Prescott who was in that draft is better than Jared Goff. Okay, but I think that for, for me, I think that what you do, no one no one wins. And Jason Kelsey said this yesterday. No one wins because they draft the quarterback. They win because they take the quarterback and figure out what to do with him. Okay. And I think that's the most important thing. I, I, and I think that, you know, is Tua going to end up being the best quarterback in the 2020 class? Actually, probably not. But are the Dolphins in better position to win the next five years than the Chargers? Yes. Uh, are they better in better position to win than the Bengals? Yes, absolutely. And Tua might be, end up being the third best quarterback in that, that wave of quarterbacks, but it doesn't matter because he went to the best situation. So competence of quarterback is really important, but I don't necessarily know if the ceiling it is the most important thing in that situation. Mahomes, listen, Mahomes is a different quarterback, even though he's the best quarterback in football by a mile. Uh, it, Mahomes is a better is is not. It's a different guy if he goes to a different situation. And so I'm I'm more about now. Like the last two years, I've become way more invested when I talk to people about culture and all that stuff. I've seen a lot of teams that are bad with great players. I haven't really seen a great team with a bad culture. Do you think there's anything to, and I'm going to give your friend and my uh, my old producer, Steve Cerruti, the credit on this one. Yeah. Um, because I know you were tight because of your magic love. But he brought up a really good point in a pre-show meeting years ago. That's why I still remember it. And he didn't even know that he was right. And that's the kind of conversations I like. But you, you enter the conversation by saying, if you want to rebuild, should you try to get the rest of this other stuff figured out? And I don't think Cerruti's necessarily the first person to ever bring it up, but it was the first time we were kind of like debating it as a topic in the pre-show. And I loved it because... And I'm not even sure I necessarily agreed with it because it's like, man, I've seen plenty of teams think they have other stuff figured out and the guy behind center sucks and they're seven and nine and it doesn't even matter. But could there be a two year window to try to get the rest of the stuff right? Figure still not winning that many games and trade for a guy that's done it before in the league. And maybe that's Carson Wentz that we'll get to. Maybe it's the market for what Stafford could be or Matt Ryan. Yeah. I mean, you just chuckled big time at Carson Wentz, but what, are you yeah. better off trying to? 
I mean, have you talked to anyone in the front office who said, we actually want to try to go for that. We want to build everything around it. We want to lay the foundation. And then, you know, the house itself is the quarterback. I think it's more situational. I think it's a, if the Dolphins had gotten the eighth pick this year because they accidentally won one more game and then they they didn't they're not going to reach for the fourth best quarterback or they're not going to use all the draft capital trade up or whatever. Maybe that's when they go out and they get a trade. I think that there's going to be massive movement. A lot of people have talked about this the last couple of weeks. There's going to be massive quarterback movement this year. And that a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's going to be new GMs in 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 a lot of different places, and whether or not I actually don't, I think the Eagles are kind of stuck with Wentz. I've been shocked when I talk to people at how well thought of Wentz is around the league, even right now, even on December. Okay, why are you shocked? Okay. Because when I watch him, no, no one, no one leads has more hopeless situational plays than the Eagles. Like the the snap happens with Wentz. Things look bad, they get worse, you know? And, and, you know, Seth Galina, PFF, had a really good piece this week about how much better everybody was on Sunday with the Eagles. The offensive line looked better. The wide receivers looked better. Something is broken. We, I think we default too easily to, oh, this guy's broken. Carson Wentz is broken. He's really, truly broken right now. Maybe he gets the OTAs next year in the training camp and, and things move forward. But I, I, I just didn't see anything with Wentz this year. When I was looking for some numbers earlier today for, for a piece I was doing, like he's pretty bad in basically everything, whether that's the red zone or under pressure or whatever. He's really bad. And like Jalen Rager was talking this week about how he and Jalen Hurts were working on chemistry after the, the practice or whatever. And we heard so much about chemistry, chemistry, chemistry with Wentz. Oh, he needs to build the chemistry. It's, it appears that Jalen Hurts has built chemistry in about five minutes. And so I don't know what the problem was with Wentz, but it, 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 there's just something there. Now, I, I'm surprised because the cap hit is huge. I thought that what, when I heard, okay, that maybe they'll try to trade Wentz. Well, you have to limit the trade partners to teams without televisions and without internet connections. That was my thought, okay? <laughs> we're just going to get the, we're going to call the GM who doesn't watch football and we're going to trade him Carson Wentz. But the more I talk to people and two people on my podcast last week, Jay Glazer and Jeremy Fowler have both said it, that it is not just that he's thought of highly, it's that the egos of, of NFL people are such that they look at Carson Wentz and see the success he's had and they say, well, I'm that guy. I'm the guy who's going to fix Carson Wentz. I had this Wentz epiphany that, I, that I've talked about a lot where I, I couldn't believe all, how many people who played the position and evaluate the position loved him. Yeah. And I was like, what? And last year, I was fine with the excuse making because the roster around him towards the end and they put together enough wins to get to the playoffs, he gets hurt in the playoff game. Like I felt like those were, they weren't excuses for Wentz. It was the reality of who he was throwing to, street free agents. And you go, all right, yeah. you know, it's not great, but look at the situation. And this year, you're right. He's just straight up bad. He's bad in a million different ways. The stats are, if you really dig into some of the stats are even worse than you would think they were, but he makes, he makes throws that have people that throw a football for a living freak out. And the people that evaluate that freak out about it as well. And that's why I, I'm not surprised on it. I mean, look, you're far more plugged in than I could ever dream of when it comes to the NFL, but I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that there's a stronger market for him. And now the media has has taken it like as if no one would ever trade for him. I don't I don't believe that. The problem is, is it's a four-year, $128 million contract that kicks yeah. in. The extension part has not kicked in yet. It hasn't kicked in yet. Yeah. Um, but I'd also like to see more from Hertz, believe it or not. Like I'd like, to, I'd oh, like to see a little bit more before I'm ready to say they found their guy. Because if he becomes... I don't know somebody who's going to start for a team for five plus years that would actually surprise me based on what I saw in college from Jalen. It just would. 
I agree with that. I don't think he was perfect, but I think that he gave That's them something. Asking, and yeah. defenses, they had, he had 106 rushing yards. And the biggest thing for me, especially like on that Miles Sanders run or whatever, defenses were knew they were going against a legitimate offense instead of just Wentz just kind of fumbling around back there. And I, I just think that it was, it was just a different team. And I don't think, I don't know if he's the next 10 years uh, in Philadelphia, but he's, he's the next three weeks. Yeah. Okay, so let's touch on something you'd said, which I believe read, heard Stafford, whether it's Matt Ryan, you know, Detroit's overhauling that thing. Atlanta has already done that. You said that there's going to be a lot of quarterback movement. What's realistic at this point, even knowing that there are going to be surprises? Sure. So once I think the cap stuff, the fact that the, the cap is not going to rise as much as it normally does, or it might stay flat or whatever it is. We don't know the cap number, but we just know there's cap uncertainty. I think that's going to depress the market a little bit because you can't take these huge dead cap charges. If the Eagles said, you know what, we, we must move on from Carson Wentz, even though they've told ESPN they're not going to do it or, or you know, they, they, he's still their guy, whatever, uh, long term. I don't I don't know how realistic that sort of thing is. I think Matt Ryan is in the same boat where the, the cap chart is just massive. And if you come in and you're the GM and you say, we have to move on from this core, you know, Daniel Jeremiah was in my potty a couple weeks ago. And he said, I'd blow up Atlanta because I'm looking at the division and I see a stacked New Orleans team and a stacked Tampa Bay team. And you've got a window here where you're not going to do anything with this core. So you might as well just take a step back for two years, let them win the division, do whatever they need to do, and then and then build on it. And there's a reason like Jacksonville is seen as, as a really good job for a head coach or a GM is because they just have a blank slate. And I think I think people like blank slates more than kind of middle-of-the-road teams right now. They don't want to build around Matt Ryan. They don't want to build around Matthew Stafford. And so I think Stafford is is probably more much more of a realistic option. Um, he's three years younger than Matt Ryan. The the contract is such that I think the dead cap, if they trade him post June first next year, is only thirteen million, which is totally fine. I you know Mike Sando had a comp in talking about potential Stafford trade that the kind of blew my mind and makes total sense was that numbers wise, playing wise, all that stuff, the comp for Stafford is Carson Palmer. And if you think about the situations they were in, if you think about how Palmer ended his career on a really good Cardinals team that was in contention for the Super Bowl, I think that that that, that should be his ending. And, you know, Dan Orlovsky is really close with Matthew Stafford said as soon as the new GM was hired, as soon as the GM was fired, that it's time to trade Matthew Stafford. I think there's momentum building towards that. And I think that there's it depends on who it is, because everybody, whether it's Atlanta or Detroit, they all face the same question, which is, do we try to maximize what we have now? Or blow it up. And, and I think that it just comes down to the personal preference of who gets those jobs. I don't like when it turns into, hey, you tried it with Stafford, move on. Or you tried it with Matt Ryan, right. move on. Because now you're bringing in somebody who's worried about keeping his job in three years, saying this means now you're going to have to take a swing on somebody who's never done it. And yeah. as we know, the numbers are, okay, go ahead and draft the guy. You buy in. I still think there are front offices that go, are we sure? We're like, I don't know. We need a quarterback and the other three guys are gone. All right, we're taking this guy. In. <laughs> yeah. Like, I really, I really think that happens. And so there can be this momentum of, ah, I just go ahead. Like we're real quick to say, ah, they need to do something different. All right. If they're blowing it up, so get everybody out of there. All right. Well, what if you blow it up around the guy and say, okay, let's try to get three more years out of Stafford or Ryan and, and maybe two years from now overhauling the roster. We're back in it. As you just said at the very beginning of this thing, the rebuild shouldn't take as long. Um, I, I, heard, I heard you had once, more. I, I, no, I, I just want to say on your point is I once heard the Brandon Whedon pick was a bit like that, that the Browns big board was so on tilt and they didn't know what to do. And they just kind of picked Brandon Whedon. 
Yeah, I think it happens. But, I really do think yeah. it happens, which is... They were just like, oh my God, this draft is not going where I thought it was. Oh my God, we just took Brandon Whedon. <laughs> it's kind of like... I, an, I heard that's what happened. It's like an Anthony Lynn timeout. Yeah. Where you go... I think... Do we yeah. call a timeout in overtime? Like, there's not a second overtime, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know. They're going to run the clock all the way down, and they're kicking a field goal, so they're going to blow a minute here, and we're going to get the ball. Do you guys want the ball back with three minutes or two minutes left, having <laughs> to score a touchdown? I don't know. I think, like, what do you want? What do you want? You know what? Let's just call one. All right. Hey, we. how many do we have? Okay. Let's call a timeout. That was, that was talking about Thursday night football at the end of it. I am not a every coach sucks. I'm not a fire everybody. I'm not yeah. a play calling is bad. I, I, I defer that I know all of these people know way more about football than me. But it's just a tough look when somebody who's who's willing to admit the things he doesn't know goes, I can't fathom why you wouldn't be calling a timeout immediately and the fact that you called one after you burned 20 seconds means you weren't ready awareness is a bigger part of this job as anything yes it's it's the chargers thing is just so strange to me and i don't think i think because they they get the rap of not having like i i'm glad the national media is kind of on this now because they're such a weird franchise and i just hope that they can not make justin herbert's life a living hell for the next four years that's all yeah, that would be that would be cool. Are you off the Steelers? Nice. Feels like people are off the Steelers. So I'm off of them in the short term and st- until I see otherwise. Um, Roethlisberger just hobbling around. Um, he's not using the the deeper intermediate part of the field. Saw some analysis from that the last couple of weeks where he's just he can only make certain throws right now. And I like the talent around him. Um, I, you know, someone like Chase Claypool, who like a super duper star in the beginning of the season, uh, TJ Watt still leads the league in pressures on defense. Make up this Patrick is elite. Um, I, I think that they have a, they will have a similar outlook to the New Orleans Saints who are starting Drew Brees on Sunday. It looks like according to, to Adam Schefter, they have such talent and they're going to have a quarterback who is banged up, who does not throw the ball down the field. I mean, we talk about Drew Brees we've been saying he can't throw down the field for, for a couple of years now. He's a yard less. It's so bad. Drew Brees is a yard yeah. less in the air than he was last year. Okay. Last He's like year. That was when every healthy. air, every air yard number that I go through, like I like that next gen stuff and it, yeah. and it can tell you some stories. And then every now and then you'll be like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. You're like, yeah, he just has a good number and he hasn't been that good. Breeze is always at the bottom of all of them. Like it's hard Alex to Smith's- find one. Alex Smith is charging. I will say that on on uh, how low the depth of target is. Alex Smith is is in the hunt to replace. Well, that's why he was benched. That's why he was benched by Harbaugh. And then Smith had like a weird thing in Kansas City where he actually just yeah. getting the ball down the field again. Yep. So that was weird because my Alex Smith number that I say to all Alex Smith people is there was a third down number there for like two years where he was throwing behind the sticks for like an entire year, and you just went, yes. "We can't, we can't do this, man. You you've got to take some shots." To give us, you can't all be on the receiver to get the first down after the catch. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that the Saints and the Steelers are in the same situation, and they're going to have to rely on the talent around them, and then a quarterback who generally knows what he's doing but can't do everything he's he's ever been able to do. I think when you get into the playoffs and you're going against a Packers team or even a Rams team or a Chiefs team in the Steelers' case, I think that that starts to catch up with you, and I think that. I think that this season is probably more of a mess than we think. Okay. And I think that the 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 difference between this season and other seasons is is much bigger when you talk to people inside the league. And I talked to someone a couple of days ago who basically said that the Chiefs' success masks how inconsistent and kind of 
how much of a, a, a mess this is from week to week and how if the Chiefs weren't as dominant and weren't able to solve their own problems as quickly, we probably talk a lot more about how the, every team is just super duper flawed, right? And so I think that there's, um, I think that with, I, I think that predicting what's going to happen in January is getting less and less um, of a good idea. And I think that, you know, when I was talking to Jake Lasek the other day about this, and he was saying, you know, there's not even, you know, teams can't even get to know each other right now. Like this is not, you know, there are some years where there's bonding in the locker room and there's, you know, as Glazer put it, people saying I would die for the guy next to me in my, in my locker room. They don't even know these guys this year. They can't eat team meals. Like they see each other at practice and say, oh, this guy, there's probably guys they don't even know, you know, each other's names. Um, there's isolation quarterbacks. I mean, everything is so different this year. I've actually spent, and this is going to sound weird, I've spent a lot of time studying leadership and and why guys play hard or whatever. John Maxwell. And all that stuff. More like... um I mean, the, not John Maxwell. Do I need to read Maxwell? No, I think he has a bunch of those books you see at airports. I bought one when I was younger. I was trying to get my. Shit Are you together. a better leader from it? Um, I would I would say my leadership style is is uh, assertive. There's a book. There's a book called Masters of the Air by Donald Miller. It's all about fighter pilots in World War II, about the bombing raids. And it's mostly about the bombing raids. But there's some stuff in there about why guys care about the people on their team that is as good as anything I've ever read. Like guys, they don't care. They didn't care about at a certain point. They did not care about serving their country, even though they were bombing Europe all the time. They only cared about the people inside their plane and they would make these packs and really interesting stuff. That, 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 let's, let's Do you that think you're a leader? A uh, I am a certain type of leader. Yeah. I'm a leader. Yeah. But not, I'm not like on that? a classic. Well, I'm not like a classic, like Brady. Maybe I am like a, like a, I'm more of like a uh, a lot of leading by example, I would say. Like an Elon and Musk I, type? I don't know what an Elon Musk type leader is. Could you expand on that? I would say um, a nonconformist. Sure. I would say I like to put people like in my orbit. I like to put them in positions to succeed. I like, I'm like a Belichick type. And that I know if I know what people can do well, I only want them doing that thing. I don't want to put them in position to fail. I want them. Okay, you do this well. That's your job. Do you offer praise when it's not deserved? Sometimes, if if I need to get somebody going, if I need to get somebody going, if I'm just like this guy, and I don't really have everybody I work with, whether in in all mediums here at the Ringer, is like really good at their jobs. Yeah. Now, when you're hosting a show. Like I was, I, I could, I could hear an argument for not a great leader, but I could hear an argument for a great leader, which is, I think that's, that's perfect. The mark me. of a true leader. Yeah. Just is that some people think you're a bad leader. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. I've also heard that those that seek leadership and don't attain it is like the worst thing ever. So you're just better off being a follower, you know, cause there's nothing worse than a bad leader. Like I don't like guys on all the sidelines that I've been on where you can just tell where the guy be like, come on, fourth quarter, this is where we yeah. got to do it. And he's just like, yep, this guy's not good at it. He's not good at it. I would None also say that like someone like Marcus Mariota is considered like the best leader anybody's ever been around. And then it turns out he just got injured a lot and just wasn't very good and it didn't end up mattering necessarily. So there's, you have to be, can't put the, you know, the cart before the horse in leadership. You do have to be a good quarterback first. Yeah, I heard Nomar I was a bad leader. But that's the thing is like the problem is, is if you're the best player on a team, 
then everybody expects you to be the leader. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily happen all the time. Like Nomar, when he was with Boston, was just a bummer of a time. He was a really good player. Yeah. And he seems like he's mellowed out a little bit. I don't really know him. We worked with him a little bit at ESPN. Um, but he he was just somebody who was really, really good. And then in Boston, everybody's like, okay, well, this is the guy. You know, this is the guy that's going to be a leader. It's like, no, I'm actually, I just want to kind of go out there and do my job. Like, I'm not great. I'm not going to do speeches. I'm not going to get guys to rally behind me. Like Kevin Millar may have been a better leader just because of personality, not because of numbers. So now we're talking about the 0304 Red Sox, which I didn't want to get to. So I would I, say this. I would say that the NFL has had problems understanding the younger generation of quarterbacks, someone like Jared Goff or even someone like Marcus Mariota, where they're a little quieter in the huddle. I mean, a lot of these guys played no huddle in high school Herbert, or college that, or whatever. Those were the knocks on Herbert yeah. big time. Like Guys are going, I don't know if he's going, and the tape wasn't always great his second year. He was better two years ago, I thought, on tape. But they're like, I don't know about this guy in the huddle. And it doesn't matter. I mean, Herbert's been he's yeah. putting together one of the great rookie seasons the position we've ever seen. GMs love to see like one play where, where the quarterback grabbed an offensive lineman's face mask on the sideline. They, not yeah. not too many, but just like one or two over the four years. And I think that that's, I think they're starting to understand that stuff matters less and less on the field in the huddle. I think it's more, I think it, leadership to me in football is like work ethic and building chemistry and not being a jackass and like that sort of thing. And I think that there's, I think that GMs and coaches don't necessarily understand. Listen, almost all teams have done studies on understanding Gen Z and how they learn and how they how they interact and stuff like that. And I still don't think they they get it. Yeah, I, my biggest thing would be don't hold hands. Like eventually, you know, direction. Yeah. Don't waste people's time. If you want to give people feedback, give them one piece of feedback and then move on. Don't give five pieces of feedback because then they're just not going to retain it all. Um, you just brought up a great point. If I'm a projected first round pick, if I'm Justin Fields this week, if I'm Mac Jones or Kyle Trask or who knows, I'm asking one of my offensive line buddies based on this podcast. Yeah. I'm like, hey, at some point, like in the second quarter, I'm going to come over to the sideline and yank your face mask at me. And I'm going to yeah. say, do you guys want any raising canes tonight? Like, I'm not even going to be actually swearing, but it's going to look like I'm super intense. And then I'm going to point at you and you're going to nod as if you accepted my leadership. That guy's yeah. draft stock is going to fucking skyrocket. I would be, if I'm a QB guru, if I'm any guy, coach, you just invented something that's perfect. I'd be, this is like, it's totally different. I want Alabama to have Devontae Smith complete a pass for less than two yards and totally gets blown up. So they're like a lot of yeah. Heisman voters go, that's my guy. He attempted yeah. a pass. Yeah. I, I want quarterbacks that are projected NFL draft picks to start grabbing their friends' face masks to convince all of us that they're intense, they care about winning, and they're great leaders. This is amazing what you just did. It reminds me a little bit, the fact that we just created this industry reminds me a little bit, you probably heard this, that at the beginning of the last decade, so like 2010 to 2013 era, there started to be guys who would coach players on how to go through the combine interviews and they realized what coaches and GMs wanted to hear. And then the GMs and the coaches realized that like before blurting out, like it, it, it's, you know, it would be something like, you know, uh, they would say like, Hey man, how you doing? And the quarterback would just be like, well, I'm doing well. I had a great relationship with my high school coach <laughs> from the time I was in ninth grade. And they'd be like, what the hell? It's like everybody one year came in and they had the exact same talking points. I love the, did you, when's the last time you cheated on your girlfriend? Like as if right. you're going to be tricked, like you won't want to admit it, but you'll go, oh, Saturday. And you're like, oh, damn it. 
And then they go, yeah, can't read a defense. And like, what, what if the guy goes, uh, I cheat on my girlfriend all the time. Yeah. What's up? Had 20 sacks. Like, are they going to go like his edge, like his first step? Don't like that. He's not faithful. I don't, I get that. It's not the answer. It's how he answers it. I just think it'd be hilarious if a guy was like, yeah, I'm a dog, man. Dog. What was the, the Bengals? I heard the Bengals used to ask Civil War trivia questions or something. I, I don't. What? What happens? Like, what happens when you get them wrong? I think they want to see what you do when you're put in an uncomfortable situation. Wasn't there a big thing where where Matthew Stafford uh, got extremely upset, probably correctly, because the 49ers uh, grilled him on his parents' own divorce? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, because especially at that age, I don't know. I wouldn't yeah. want to talk about it. Then. But at the same time, too, if I, if I were that age and I'm potentially a number one pick, I'd probably just start blabbering left and right about it. But I'd, I'd be like, what are you going to do? Like, have me break down. You know, I'm still still hanging on to a lot of stuff. Emotionally, I'm not always there. I'd be like, okay, this isn't our guy. Let's take somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> all right um let's 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 get back to your saints thing yeah my and saints because i have a couple point. other things yeah my steward my steward saints point which is um that i think that you have to be you have to already have built something as far as a cohesive culture or whatever it is and you have to have a bunch of self-starters and i think with tomlin and sean payton both of those guys have built something where it can run on its own and so that's why i'm a little bit more optimistic about this team than i normally would be is that the most teams are at huge disadvantages when it comes to that stuff. And I don't believe the Saints and the Steelers necessarily are. Um, I don't think Ben Roethlisberger is like the greatest leader in the world, by the way. Um, but I think that there's there's just something there with those two coaching staffs and, and the continuity and all that stuff. And listen, I, I think the pa- I, I'm coming around on the Packers winning the NFC, um, but I would not be surprised if the Saints make a run here. Okay, let's stay in the NFC then because the three seed behind the Saints and the Packers, the Rams, there's two coaching parts that I want to hit on here. Is it safe to say that for all that you had some incredible McVeigh tree zingers like you were kind of the go-to you could have rebranded yeah. yourself as the McVeigh coaching tree zinger guy but the McVeigh trees worked has it oh resistance or we don't know no yet. no we don't know yet so I think okay, in some fine. places like Green Bay it has definitely worked yeah uh, but I would also say that that's that's the Shanahan. I think that's listen. First of all, it's the Shanahan tree. You're right. Okay? You're right. It is. It's the Shanahan tree. And so with Green Bay, you know, he came up with with Kyle Shanahan. Yes, there's a McVay connection um, with Zach Taylor and with in Cincinnati he hasn't necessarily worked. Sean McVay is still an awesome coach. Um, we're seeing that this year. And so I think that the the Andy Reid tree is is probably still number one over the last twenty years. I would say the Shanahan tree is is right around there. Uh, Matt Nagy doing a terrible job of carrying carrying the torch for the the Andy Reid tree right now, but Eric Bieniemy is going to bring it back up next year. Um, I think that yeah, I I, I think that the McVay Kingsbury's thing, considered a Shanahan tree guy, right? I I guess yeah. Well, I guess maybe more on style. So the Zach Taylor one, it's tough to argue that one. I think at least Arizona, even with some recent midseason blips, they're heading in a better direction than they were. Um, and I still would include Shanahan in the tree because it's actually his dad's tree. So uh, I, I don't know. I just think for all the people who are like, oh, this is all you're going to do. There's more wins than losses, at least right now. Can you I, can we, I, let me ask you a question. 
if golf plays really badly and they get to the Super Bowl, okay, like golf is one of the worst players under pressure in football. He's along with Baker Mayfield. I think their rating is like 45 or something when, when there's people in their face. Out of a thousand? He's, out of a thousand. Out of 158. I, I, I look at it two ways. I think that that Jared Goff being average and the Rams being good obviously makes Sean McVay look good. But I, is there, how do you view kind of the credit that you give McVay uh, for developing Jared Goff into an average quarterback? I guess you could say is the question. Um, should we expect more out of him because he plays in in such a good system with Goff? Or is, is, is McVay maximizing Goff to the point that we should be impressed just based on what we've seen in the past from Goff. I'm more impressed because I thought Goff was so bad his first year. Yeah, that's my thing. But part of that's Jeff Fisher, right? Easy. Um, I was just, you know what's funny is I was just talking about Jeff Fisher the other day. Do you remember when they gave him a $7 million extension just for moving? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that they was just, great. They tacked on another year at I think $7 million. And then whoever broke the story became on my radio show. They're like, well, Ryan, he had to move a franchise. I was like, he's not out fucking packing the Mayflowers, all right? He's not boxing up stuff. So anyway. Um, that's, two, year, that's, two, two weeks ago, Jared Goff is from Shilkapati at the Athletic. His average pass traveled three and a half yards past the line of scrimmage. And he still threw for 351 yards because the Rams, had, the Rams had 253 yards after the catch. That's yeah. So that's why I look at McVeigh as a win. now. Do you see things that Shanahan does against McVeigh where it's it's just Shanahan knows everything McVeigh is going to do. So Salah and everybody's totally on the same page because it's weird that they've beaten yes. him twice. I think I think it is. I think it's a little bit of that. I think that I think McVeigh taking a step back and obviously Shanahan's always going to know what McVeigh wants to do. But I think that the fact that McVeigh took a step back and I saw people compare the Rams with the Ravens actually where once kind of the book got out on that offense they took an entire year for them to make adjustments and I think with the Rams I think their ability to bounce back from an uneven offensive line banged up 2019 um, I think it just shows you that Sean McVay is a better coach than we even thought and so I think that I, I've just been hugely impressed and I think that there was I was joking last year about how Sean McVay was the new Chip Kelly where he had you know one pitch he used it they figured it out and it was over uh, that to me even though I was joking at the time that that's not the, the, I think we know now he's got a number of pitches and I've been hugely impressed with it the Shanahan thing is probably always going to be there though the Rams part of this with McVay is the headline. The headline should be the defense. And I had somebody yes. who I really trust, who I think is terrific, um, who's with with a team, was like, you know, you, need, you guys need to start talking about Brandon Staley, the defensive coordinator for yes. the Rams, the way you talk about McVay. Because Staley's going to be the next head coach, but he's, he's the McVay of defense. The stuff he's doing. And I understand not playing that there are limitations, but he was explaining, he was taking me through it and that a lot of the stuff Staley's do. So I checked around and more people were like, yeah, like people are looking at what the Rams are doing, that the Rams are doing things defensively in a way that if it were an offense, we'd all be freaking out and talking about it. But the, we just don't do that with defense. Yeah, uh, Staley, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago when I drafted Brandon Staley in our coaching staff That's infrastructure right. draft. I took Staley probably Great before pick. anybody else. That was October, I think. You were on that early. My God. I was on that early. And I think that it, uh, we see a still a lot of the same things, which is they can stop the run without committing to the run. 
and they know how to play the pass in an interesting way. And the point I made back then is a point that's been made by a couple people, including Seth Galina, that they are the the revolution that was that already came to offenses is coming to defenses with more college schemes, just understanding everything. Um, I don't want to. I actually, I'm going to write the story. So if if anybody out there is thinking about writing the story after I say it, you're not allowed to until I write it. Brandon Staley was a like a blogger like four years ago. And he, I swear to God, he he wrote for a website that I read all the time um, called X's and O's Labs. And he was the, a coordinator at James Madison, something like that. Right. But he definitely and, was coaching just so people. Oh, no, he was, this, he was right. coaching. He was coaching. He was coaching. But he was a low level, uh, a low level college assistant. And he was just writing all of these really cool scheme blogs, just explaining it. And I kind of feel like Brandon Staley is a little bit of the future in that he's super tapped into the internet. He understands how to explain these things and how to make connections and, and all that stuff. And his rise this year has been incredible. And there was hype. I remember P- Peter Schrager was actually the first person I remember to hype Brandon Staley up uh, last after the hire was made because there were a lot of questions. He was born in 1982. He's only 38. There Bad were a lot year of for questions. coordinators. He went from... So he was the outside linebackers coach in 2017. In 2016, he was the secondary coach and defensive coordinator at John Carroll. In 2014, he was at James Madison. He was the, uh, he was a graduate assistant at tw- in 2012 at Tennessee. Who was that? Was that a uh, Dooley that Jones? Derek Dooley. Wow, super staff. It's really, I mean, the Dooley tree probably underrated. <laughs> He was a graduate assistant, but like he, I, I kind of think that there's a next wave of, of coaches who understand how to use the resources of the internet and stuff like that. And the fact that Staley was just writing for this website while he was coaching a couple of years ago is really fascinating to me. Very early. I think maybe second week you wrote a big piece about Cam Newton. How did 31 other owners sure. let this happen? How did you go to the Patriots? Are you writing part two? Why 31 other owners passed on Cam Newton? I think we see it. I think we see it. Um, I, I think that you know to to defend my piece, I'll I'll say a couple of things. Number one is that obviously the things we saw in September that led me to make those declarations have not continued. So I was wrong. Uh, whether that and what I mean by that, the declarations I'm talking about is saying if you're an owner right now, you should be yelling at your GM for not offering Cam Newton any contract. I think that. There are still red flags if your GM did not call Cam Newton for seven hundred for a million one point one million dollars. Um, he was available, and there were two teams. There were two teams that called a former MVP who was on the open market and ready to accept the minimum. Okay, and he was ready to be a backup or whatever. And so the the point of the piece I wrote was basically saying like if if you didn't do your due diligence, you should feel bad. Okay. Um, I actually still believe that Cam Newton is the 884th highest paid player in the NFL. The Panthers are paying more money to Cam Newton this year against the salary cap than the Patriots are. And um, so I think that the process on that whole thing was illuminating. Uh, What I was totally wrong about is how productive Cam Newton could be. And that I'll take my medicine on that one. Um, I thought he was, you know, the, the COVID stuff was obviously strange, but I think as far as just the the recovery from that and how how the Patriots have looked in the past um, two months. But I would say that the I I thought that there was a way this offense could look and it just hasn't it just hasn't been efficient. And, you know, I think from a team standpoint, the Patriots are cooked once the defensive opt outs happened. But offensively, 
I had a little bit of optimism that Cam Newton could could build sort of a rushing attack that could be interesting. The wide receivers have not been much help, but I I, I had a vision for this that I think we saw at the first three four weeks of the season that just didn't carry on. So I was wrong about about Cam Newton, and I don't think there's uh, there's there's much wiggle room there. Couple things: we had no idea historically how bad Seattle was defensively, especially in the secondary. The first month of the season, it was off the yes. charts terrible. So his big out against them, they got Miami pretty good. Um, no, but I'm saying yeah. that that first, I think the first four games yeah. or something, when I yeah. look at their numbers and they were like 80 yards worse than the second worst team through the air, I was like, gosh. And so they're like, okay, wait, maybe Cam. I thought the Vegas game was a bad sign because they won and everybody's like, oh, Cam figured it out. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't think Cam is good and the weapons are terrible. And I actually think he's really hurt now. Now I think he's really hurt. Watching him in that Rams game get down to a knee on the huddle and then watching him try to get up and they had great camera access to it. You could see it on his face. So I don't even know, like I didn't love his throwing motion before. I have no idea what the hell's going on now. So I'm actually backing you up there a little bit. So I didn't want to make it feel like I was, I was coming at you last thing, last yeah. thing, slow news day. It's terrific. Check it out with Kevin on our ringer webpage. You had Adam Schefter on, I gotta admit, it felt like Schefter was campaigning a bit for an Emmy nomination. Do you feel used? No, I mean, a week ago, Chris Collinsworth came on and said he wants his MVP vote back. If Slow News Day becomes the place where we start campaigns, I'm fine with that. You know? Okay, it's like I, I need I to think didn't, of mine. Didn't, didn't Arnold Schwarzenegger go on Jay Leno to announce his candidacy for California's governor? It's the same thing. Now it's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same thing. So uh, it was a great episode. I thought he was an amazing guest. An amazing guest. I think he was uh, maybe one of our best ever. He also, and this is important. Take it easy. <laughs> one of our best outside guests ever non-ringer non-ringer affiliates uh i think that he understood he got the show like he knew the segments and stuff yeah no he's very good. rare w- very rarely happens with people who are outside the ringer universe like he'd clearly seen it before and i think that we all had after we logged off a little bit of elation that like adam Schefter knew like h- how the show worked because most people would just log on and like what is, is this a podcast adam Schefter was not that I'm going to try to do a bad job then next time. I'm going to not, I'm going to try to get it as little as possible. So I'm looking forward to that one in 2021. Yeah. Well, you're more, anytime you want to come on and do a bad job, you're more than welcome. Can't wait. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Kevin. Anytime, Ron. All right. Just a moment. We're going to talk with Jay Harrington, actor, famous guy out in Los Angeles on getting his career started and where he's at now with the CBS show. This episode is brought to you by Netflix. A gentleman always opens the door for you, but the gentlemen are just as likely to break it down and stash their drugs inside. The Gentleman, based on Guy Ritchie's award-winning film, is a new Netflix series that follows a whole new cast of criminal lords and ladies slumming it in Britain's criminal underworld. Guns out and pinkies up. Don't miss The Gentleman, now playing only on Netflix. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Okay, our guest is an actor. His name's Jay Harrington. You may know him from SWAT, where he plays Sergeant David Deacon K. Uh, he's also been a Desperate Housewives, Suits, Nash Bridges. I went through his entire resume in preparation for this. But the cool thing about Jay 
is that back when I was living in Malibu, I would use the famous person Equinox, which is up in Santa Monica. <laughs> it's just funny, Jay, because like that Equinox, it's just something about Santa Monica. I think it's closer to work for people. Maybe it's closer. For, a lot of people like lived a little bit inland from there. And there's all sorts of people in there. And you were nice enough to say hi to me. And I'm always kind of like in my own little zone where I'm like, huh, what's going on? And then, you know, you're from Mass and you're this really accomplished guy. So you were really nice to me when I was first trying to get my feet wet out there. No, I saw you. I'm like, that's that's Priscilla. What the hell is he doing here? Um, and yeah, I, I think you're most recognizable from the the NBA celebrity All Star game where I saw you. Yeah, that was that was tried to get into that so many times. It's a tough it's a tough sell to get anybody to. So I was kudos to you for getting on there at all. Yeah, well, it's an ESPN product, so you'd like to think you'd be able to get into it at some point. Um, but it is it is tough, and I'm not super proud of of that performance. <laughs> uh, going into it but your whole thing like whenever you research you I i'm actually a little disappointed that your pr people need to get on it a little bit more because the first thing that comes up is basketball celebrity league the entertainment league and then they were going over stats and everything so what's what's that all about is that league actually as good as i hear it is because i it heard that's tough to get into it was it, i mean it's it's no longer in existence but there was a time when it was it was actually an nba product so we would get it was called nba e NBA entertainment, we would get full bags of Jersey, like whatever team you wore that season, it was, you got the, the, the jerseys, the socks, the every kind of gear you could get. And of course I'd always lobby to be the Celtics. So I have a whole ton of Celtics gear and I probably I was in Raptors, the heat. So you get all this cool stuff. And then what you can, find, you guys demand trades too, like the real NBA. We had like draft stuff where you would try to lobby. Like, so my best player for five years, you say my, my team was, Mostly um, uh, Dean Kane for years, Bob Myers, who at the time was the agent. Um, oh, so the Bob Myers, the Golden State Warriors, Bob Myers. Yeah. So it was, the, I think, the first championship. I'm looking at the celebration and I'm like, wait, that's Bob. <laughs> I didn't, I never really paid attention to their GM situation. And, but he was an agent at the time and he had played at UCLA. Um, yeah. And he was our big man. Unfortunately, his real game is that he's like a spot-up three-point shooter. So he, he'd have like 30 rebounds, but 28 of them were his own miss on the layup. Because his strength, I'm going to bring that up. Yeah, no, his strength was the three-point. He would just run down the court, stop, pop, and run backwards. It was going in. So we won once. Um, but it was great. You'd have, like I remember trying to throw a full-court pass with a few seconds left against a team that had Jason Seahorn on it. As I'm letting go, I'm like, I'm, okay, that's an all-pro defensive back safety what am i okay yeah, of course he picked it off but so it was fun we got to play with all sorts of guys and and uh actors producers and then athletes that were you know rick fox was on the team for a little bit it, it was yeah it was great yeah that's that's good then those those are those are pickup games because every now and then at espn like a guy would watch us play and the espn league was pretty good but Rarely did like Jalen Rose want to play in it or something. And then right. Chris, Chris Mullen would come by and he would just shoot it from 30, not even warmed up suit. And you just, not that you needed a reminder that a guy at six, seven who shot the lights out his entire life is a good shooter. Right. But there would just be these little moments. And then Avery Johnson would come out and yell at us. He'd be like, this is some bad basketball. This is bad. And he would just, he would be like, you guys suck. 
Yeah. <laughs> You're like, all right, all right, relax. But yeah, that's everything with your resume always brings up all the hoops and everything. But the reason I think it's funny is because that gym, it's got a bunch of like a tough, like remember one time and I'm not trying to like be weird about it because everybody's kind of sticks to themselves, but it is a weird deal when you come from the East coast and you're working out at a gym in West Hartford. And then all of a sudden you're like, is that Hillary Swank on the pull down? Like what's <laughs> yeah, going on she, here? And she does work out there. And then it's really sweet. I've talked to her. She's too. so she's nice. And then there was, um, the one that actually I felt bad about after the fact was the guy that plays Toby in the office who's like a big showrunner too. And I saw him working out and he was dressed like Toby would be working. And he had like tens on the bench press and I brought it up on Simmons podcast <laughs> and then it just went. And I go, you know, for this guy's trying to break into TV writing, I probably shouldn't yeah. start goofing on a showrunner. Uh, no. But it was just fascinating that it was as if Toby were fully in character working out. And I, I was like, all right, I'm just going to leave this guy alone. Yeah, like, you just got to learn. Button down shirt on. And, yeah. <laughs> Fill it no, out more. The reason I love that gym back when they had gyms was that yeah. I would go midday and it was usually quite empty. Um, yep. So it was, you know, and it's right near my house. So I, I love it. But uh, I miss those days when you could go to a place and work out. Let's uh, let's go backwards a little bit because yeah. there are a lot of people that when they're younger, they'll say, hey, I want to be an actor. You're from Massachusetts. Uh, a lot of people, it's just family, you know, finding a way in. I know your background a little bit, but what's the moment where you go, this is actually something I'm really going to pursue and you pack up and, and get after it? Well, when I realized that if I go to college and major in theater, I'd never had to take math or science ever again. That was a big part of it. But I'd done, I'd done it since I was a little kid. There was a theater on Cape Cod down the street from my house and um, with three boys and you know, no cable. And when it was raining out, there's not a lot to do. And we went down there, they had classes, and I just kind of got into it. And when you're a boy auditioning for, and it was like adults were teaching, they were having summer vacation. I'd had some amazing teachers from New York and from Trinity Rep in, in Providence, Rhode Island. But when you're a boy auditioning, there's not a lot of boys doing stuff. Girls at that age were into it. So I was getting roles all the time, and I kept going and going. And I was doing a play as an early teenager in Boston. And the casting director saw the play and asked me to come out and audition for a McDonald's commercial. And I had no pictures or nothing. I just was still in high school. And I got it. And they flew me to L.A. And I was here for a week and, and did a McDonald's commercial. And that's when I kind of realized I could make money doing this. That's fun. And I had this sort of ignorance about it. So when I was going through college and, and Syracuse is where I went. And I went there on purpose. I chose that place because they had sports and they had a campus, you know, I, I could have gone to NYU and studied theater, but I was 17 as a freshman. I wanted to be in a campus environment. And, and so it was well-rounded. And then by the time I got to New York, I just always had this ignorance, like, yeah, I'm going to, this, this is what I'm going to do. And it's carried me kind of through, I think. Still is, it, is it being delusional though? Because sometimes I'll tell younger people, like sometimes being delusional is the best thing you could possibly be. Like we probably had friends where they're not the best looking guy and they'll be hitting on the most beautiful woman. And you go, why are you doing that? But then in a way I'm like, you know, I kind of envy that he doesn't think twice about it. And that could be a huge benefit in your career, but then it also can get to the line like anything where you're like, don't be so delusional that you actually are annoying to be around. No, you, and you have to work. I mean, I people ask me all the time about advice. What, what, what You can't really give advice for, how to be an actor and, and every, every path is going to be different, but you just, I knew it's what I wanted to do. I studied, I continued to study when I was in New York for a few years, when I came out here, finding class, just kind of. Oh, What's then, studying though? Can you, can you help us understand like what it's like to actually learn like, Oh, this is something that will make me better at this. Um, 
Well, I mean, there's there's lots of ways to for preparation. You get a scene from a, whether it's a TV show or a play, and you work with a partner, and you get up in front of other people and and do it, and have them, you know, tell you how how they think. I mean, that's a big part of scene work. But um, there's there's I think you have to have inherently some kind of not not a gift, but you have to have it a little bit. Um, and then it's just like a sport. I mean, you have some kid that's was the best kid in your high school and you thought that kid's going to be a pro and then he didn't do anything because he didn't put any work in. So it, it's similar in that way. Um, just like sports, like what the NCAA, you got basketball, you're watching these guys in March and then you only have ever heard of seven of them afterwards because you realize that the pool is so huge and the talent is, that's not a lot of slots in there for, but can it be something where you go, Hey, I didn't know what I looked like. I mean, this may sound absurd to you, okay? So I'm just going to ask as like a person that doesn't understand it. But if you watch back a scene where you go, oh, I don't like the way my face looks here. And then somebody teaches you, hey, have this kind of reaction. And then you almost have go-to moves like in sports where you're like, all right, that's Jay's doing his thing. He's doing kind of a side smile because he's a SWAT guy, but he's he's tough. And all Like, do you end up having go-to things that you learn that work better that make you a better actor? I think, I mean, I guess you could probably interpret it that way for me and for this show specifically, the writers have written for me in such a way that I, you know, just listen, just listen. The biggest key to acting is listening to the other person and you get the most, one of the directors always jokes when he's editing the episodes, he always goes, he can always cut to me even when I'm not talking because I'm listening and I'm giving him, you know, reactions to what's happening. And that's a big part of it. I mean, someone said to me when I was a little kid, acting is reacting. So it's, it sounds simple, but I mean, it is, it's simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. Sean Ryan um, is part yeah. of SWAT, creator of the shield, which is, I think historically will be remembered as a show that really pushed the boundaries of what the, roles were supposed to be and you know whenever we go back and look at this this golden age of television it's it's brought up with oz it's brought up with the wire okay. and sopranos what's it like working with somebody who you know you've had this relationship with and then he's part of swap where i feel like the trust has to be there that's that's unbelievably it just has to make you comfortable more comfortable in a way where you're like all right this is a big deal it's a cbs show it's on all the time it gets big numbers i'm really a main character but the creator part of the creation team here is somebody i've worked with in the past yeah and um you know, I actually did an episode of The Shield, um, yeah. so, and I got and actually the, you mentioned Nash Bridges, which is such a random um, <laughs> IMDb was one you know episode, but he actually wrote on that show too, which was um, just a coincidence. But he, uh, he, you know, when we started the show, it, the first episode, this is three years or four years ago, our our team leader shoots an unarmed black teen in um, South Central LA and gets fired, and so we were sort of ahead of stuff at that point in terms of storytelling. But what ended up happening the first season or two is we were, we were asking Sean for more of that, more shield, more shield. And, and his thing was be patient because first of all, that's not the kind of show this is. We're not going to get into the Rampart scandal. We're not doing that. However, we got to let these, when you're doing network television, the shield was different because FX had never had a TV show. So he could kind of, it was an experiment in a sense. Whereas this is a little more formulaic, like let's the first two seasons, you got to bring the audience in so they can understand who these characters are. Then by season three, season four, if we get that far, that's when you can start getting into stuff. And we're doing that now. We're, 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 we're addressing all sorts of issues within police, you know, the stuff that's out there right now. But because um, I had some trepidation going into this season when we were off this time, I thought I'm playing, you know, white 
police officer in LA. This is, this is going to, what, what is my responsibility going to be? But, um, so, you know, like you said, it's trust and, and he had success before. So I'll let him how, do it. how- how much, because, you know, I was reading something recently, like, where it was basically blaming police roles and television of being complicit for the way that policing is looked at now. And we've probably changed uh, the way we talk about all of it now in the, in the last few years with the, the heightened, um, I, I don't know if awareness is the right word or what, or more people realizing what's going on or the deb- debates about what's going on. But how does that impact what you guys are doing when you're trying to tell a story and when you get a script and how different is maybe just playing somebody in law enforcement today in television than it was five, 10 years ago? Well, what's different from the get go with this show is, um, and what's interesting about SWAT in LA specifically, it's, it's, uh, it's the, still the go-to for all, places all over the world to come train or or SWAT team members from LA will go to other countries and train. It's the best tactical training there is. These guys, you don't just get in because of, you know, you know somebody. Like these guys are the best at what they do. And I follow them on social media nine, even more than nine times out of ten. They have they they respond to so many calls. They're always ended without incident. Um, their goal is to go in and and to to diffuse the situation when you're talking about a hostage with a weapon and whatever it may be um, because of the training they do. So we always had this idea that we're not just, this isn't like a cop where we come up and we see the body, like what's going on here? What do we got? That was good though. You delivered that line. Well, that was like the beginning of every single SVU. (laughs) Right. And, and the difference in our show is in those shows, it's the first few minutes you find out what happened and the rest of the hours who did it. Whereas ours is we show what happened and the hours spent trying to, we know who did it and we're trying to get them. Um, but the respect I have for the guys, and I've met a bunch of them um, that help us with our stuff. And our, we have a, t- a technical advisor all day who's a retired San Diego SWAT team member. Um, these guys, they don't just walk around and look for trouble. I mean, they're, they're only getting called when it's dire. And, uh, and they know every time they're going in that there's a chance that they'll, they'll die. And what's crazy is that they've only lost one um, SWAT member in Los Angeles in the 30 something years history. And it was Randall Simmons. Yeah. He, he's the only, only officer. And the, the story is, is crazy. They went and responded to an incident. A guy had his dad hostage. He was the second or third guy in the guy just was running down the hall and fired a gun without looking and it hit him. And they just kept on with what they do. They stepped, the team just kept moving and moving and advancing. They, they got the guy. And then like the last guy they bring out, the, the officer and he was down and that's the only person they've lost and it was the saddest there's a it's a great thing on youtube about him but um it's pretty remarkable that that's the only officer they've lost how important is it to you that the real guys that do it respect at least the work you're putting in to try to make it look as real as possible because well, i gotta imagine that like you know there's probably some swat guys that watch the show and go whatever no we're actually i i swear we do get i get guys that that write me that because of the work we put in our, our guy, uh, Odie Gallup, who's actually from, uh, from Maine. Who oh, was, no kidding. Yeah. He's San Diego. He he's there every day. So since the beginning, we trained for two weeks with him before we even started. And, um, I'm at the point with, with weapons and I, I just, it's so second nature. And when we're going into a room, we kind of already know how to, how to breach and where to go. And, and, um, he's, he got a comment, in a new in a paper recently from the last episode, just to, uh, just how fluid we are. And, and it, that's what I, when we're doing those sequences, I want to make those guys do the opposite of what you said. 
to actually say, wow, they, they're doing it correctly. I guess I was just going by internet and that no matter what you do, it was just going to be like, oh, I can't believe, I can't believe Jay would be the second in on clearing that. That's he's in the wrong position or something. (laughs) Just go like, all right, all right, all right. No, there was one, I had one post once where I was standing there in between a take. So it was like seconds before rolling and my gun was just at my, you know, my, my primary weapon was hanging in it. And I, I wrote, have a, a safe, Labor Day weekend or something, and someone's like, "Oh, the irony! His weapon's hot, like because it, it wasn't unsafe, but we were about to shoot." I'm like, "Ah, you can't win! <laughs> you can't win!" Um, leading up to something like this, because I, I, I do want to, you know, I'm kind of jumping around timeline here, wise. Yeah. Where I imagine, like anybody that sets out to do something special like this, you're like, "May you know, will I be a leading man? Will I have the these other roles?" Uh, and there's only so many spots open. Very few people ever get to achieve that. So then when something comes along like, hey, it's CBS. Yeah. It's, you know, the residuals alone. This is going to run. It's going to rear. It's going to be all these different things. When you're looking at this opportunity, like what is that moment like with you and your agent and, and hoping this works out? Clearly, the relationship with Sean, I would think, would give you some sort of benefit or an advantage. You know, I don't know how that works up. But I imagine this is the kind of thing where you go, yeah, I get that I'm not going to be nominated for an Oscar here. But this is right. going to this is going to end up being something that is my thing where, you know, money wise. I mean, look, I'm not trying to get in your pocket here. No, but no, I you, it's it's a living where all right, I'm going to have a comfortable life, perhaps, because I'm able to attach myself that could run for for 10 seasons. Yeah, that moment still hasn't hit me, to be honest. I don't mean, I, I, I'm very, if you knew, all right, I mean, if you knew me, you should, if you knew the car I'd ride, like I still have my 2005 Yukon Denali. I'm, I'm very, I own a place in Santa Monica, but I'm, I'm very, you know, that's, that's not my style. So I, I still think, well, that, that would be great, but who knows? Um, but the moment, yeah, it was a big thing for me. It had been a tough couple of years leading up to getting really close on stuff and not getting it. And, um, I changed a few things. I, I hit the gym a little harder. I just wanted to make a change just to feel better. I put on some weight. And then I was, I would use, I would shave all the time, but I was using this razor that I liked and it broke this electric thing. And so for two weeks it, it was sold out on Amazon and I just was letting my face grow. And my wife at the time said, you should keep, keep, keep that going. It looks good. And I had a beard all of a sudden and SWAT comes along and the people running the casting said, no, no, we like Jay, but he's not right for this. And my agent pushed and pushed. And um, thankfully, Sean Ryan had said, I've seen so many actors for this role. Can I start to see some people that have done comedy? Because people that do comedy tend to have something going on behind the eyes. And they're, they're, they understand timing. And comedy's hard. Comedy's way harder. So I went in and they were like, oh, who's the new kid in town? <laughs> so, yeah, it was a great sort of culmination of so many things. And uh, my... Justin Lin directed the pilot. He did Fast and the Furious, the franchise. He's done a million of those. And he, um, he, his first movie um, that he directed after his indie that got him all the attention was Annapolis with James Franco um, and Tyrese. That was written by my, one of my close friends from, from home, from Wellesley, um, Dave Collard. So Dave then texts Justin. And I, got, I had people working the all angle. Because I had done the, I went in audition. I felt good. So then I'm like, let me see if, you know, throw everything at him and, uh, and it worked out. This episode is brought to you by crown Royal. This NBA season crown Royal is celebrating the loyal fans that show up for every tip off. I love every tip off. I love every one of them. And people ask me, Hey, are you tipping off tonight? Because they know that's code for are the games on? And I'll say, yeah, come on over, bring your kids. I don't care about the audio feed. 
You can walk in front of the television because this time of year, the second half of the NBA, it's about family. And that's one of my favorite things about my life. Crown Royal believes if you live generously, life will treat you royally. Visit crownroyal.com to get ready for tip-off. Please drink responsibly. You're going to laugh at me uh, in my research for this. I watched you in a hotel room maybe 10 years ago with an English guy do an interview on the leadoff to, to Better Off Ted. Oh, yeah. Which, for the, those that don't know, Jay was the star of that. It, it probably felt like this is my moment, and it gets canceled after, what, two seasons, and yet everybody loved it. Everybody right. loved it. You broke, the, you broke down you know, the fourth wall of, of the camera. You would address it. Other characters did it. It was a cool concept. It, it's one of those shows where it's like, hey, everybody loves this, and now we're canceling it. And you had a different look. It's also, you know, what, 10 years ago, so you just looked yeah. a little bit different. But how frustrating is that moment where you go, wait, I've got my thing. This is amazing. People love it. And yet we're done with it already. And I, I think that like Arrested Development, you know, was went through something like that. And then it was Very survived. Much. There's a couple other examples of that. And it felt like this was one. And then it's just is gone in two years. And, and, and it's what's it's the worst is that every few months it's on all these picks of, you know, the top 10 shows to watch like during quarantine that, that you may not have saw, seen. And it was the best, you know, and it, and it killed on Netflix and Hulu. And people would say, how come it's not on anymore? I said, well, where'd you watch it? Oh, I watched it on Hulu. Well, yeah, that's why. Because when it was on TV, you didn't watch it. It didn't do well in the ratings, um, unfortunately. But yeah, critically, it's across the board. It's one of those, you got to see this show. And it's so now pertinent. So we're, we're actually going to do a table read of it um, right before New Year's for charity. Um, the, the writer reached out to me and to Portia and to Andrea and Jonathan and Malcolm and, and even Isabella, who was my daughter. She oh, wow. Was yeah, she was 10 she's 21 now. So it's like, it's a whole different, the, everything, the whole dichotomy of all of it is going to be very strange. But so I do you, do you miss doing comedy then? Yeah, I do. I mean, I loved it. I, I, I had the best time. I mean, I got to do like 10 or 12 episodes of hot in Cleveland with women from every generation of comedy from, you know, Valerie Bertinelli and, and, and Jane leaves and Wendy Malick. And then of course, Betty white, like I got to work with her for a, almost a year. Um, so I, th those are fun. The hours on comedy, that's ridiculous. You go into work at 10 o'clock on Monday for a, an hour, Tuesday, maybe two hours of work, 30, a few hours. And then Friday night you tape. It's like being a bank teller. It's the best, but, but I'm, I'm enjoying this. What's now. a day like SWAT on then? Well, now it's different. We, we, it used to be 12, 14 hours at least every day. And we do nine day episodes but one of those days is you're doing two episodes at once you have two units going so you're like where am i what, what which color shirt am i wearing because i forget like the, that ninth day was always now because of everything they've shortened everything we have 10 hour days and we take we take a full nine days to do just one episode so it's actually been a lot easier on us and the crew so throughout this because you know from what i've heard and we were talking a little bit about this that I mean, there, there becomes priority shows that through a mm -hmm. pandemic, let's figure out how we can get these on. SWAT is certainly that. So what, what was it like getting this thing even restarted with all the uncertainty of, of whether or not, you know, you're going to get to this fourth season of taping episodes? Yeah. I mean, I was going into it wondering if we're going to get even asked to come back because of what's going on in, in the current climate about police. But once we started, I mean, they, they made all these agreements about safety and protocols and it's challenging for us sometimes because they're asking you and look it sounds stupid i'm just but when you're on a set and you're about to do it i was doing a scene with the woman uh, brie blair who plays my wife and 
the scene calls for some affection and some, you know, reassurance from a husband to a wife. And they got to have us like six feet apart, right? Rolling into it, you're wearing a mask, but you're trying to rehearse with an actor. And like, I can't really see their face. So it's like, or, you know, I, I, uh, sometimes it's a little bit frustrating and it was getting to me more a while ago. And I've had to make a decision like, look, you got to get over this. This is it. Um, we're lucky to be working and I don't want it to get shut down and, this crew is depending on all of us. And, and I think CBS and Sony probably thought they're in good shape, these guys. Maybe we can start with them and, and see how it goes. Um, you know, as opposed to a show that might have an older cast member or whatnot. So um, it was a lot going in, but I'm, we're, we're doing it. I mean, we've had a couple hiccups, but not really even. Um, a couple cases that were positive of crew members that are like one who's in construction. So he's never actually on set and it just, we're, we're lucky, but we're doing, we're also, we're paying attention to the rules and doing the best we can. To be on this kind of show then, is it to the point, is it the first time in your life where it's, it's auto now you're just recognized everywhere? Like, no, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I still get that. Like, do I know you from high school kind of look, you know, or like, um, but I, I, it depends where I go. I mean, if I'm in, an airport sometimes, or if I'm like in Vegas, when there are people from the Midwest, but in, in LA, no. And, and I guess in Boston too, when I'm home, I'll get some of that. Um, I, I had a fun one in Boston actually two years ago. I was at, staying at the Liberty hotel. I stay there all the time. I love the oh, that's the best. Yeah. That's yeah. the best hotel. I think, I mean, anywhere, if that was in a sum, like a, like Florida or like Miami or if that, just that decor, that's that place. Yeah, it's just the setup. I mean, it's weird. when it's packed in the lobby, the balcony <laughs> lobby area, it's almost overwhelming. You're like, wait, but yeah. it's great because you stay in there. You just go and then alibi downstairs. I, I don't know what it is. And for those that aren't listening, it's not even the location necessarily because it's it's right there, like um Sturro. It's right next to Sturro, but it's walking distance to the garden. It's really like towards North Station. The hospital's right there. It's it's not the the location of it. It's that it was an old jail. Yeah. And so there's all this really cool stuff going on inside of it. And it just, I don't know. It, it's my favorite place. I can't believe you said that. It's my favorite place yeah. to stay too. So, well, I don't know if you know that, you, you know, on weekends there's like a club. And I think Alibi is what it is. And even yeah, where? And there was yeah. a lot, like a line down the street. And I had just come from meet a couple of buddies up the street. And I'm walking back and I'm like, oh, geez. Now I'm a guest at the hotel. But. I kind of walk up and guys like, oh, can I help you, sir? And then uh, Boston PD, this guy's like six, five, just looks over me. He goes, what's up, Deke? <laughs> <laughs> and he likes to come on in. I'm like, Hey, all right. Um, yeah. For those that don't know, Boston's not, you know, Boston would be the kind of place to be like, all right, the line's over there, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Like, Oh, SWAT. Cool. Yeah. yeah. That good. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I get that. I get the, the police officer, Santa Monica. I'm driving six months ago. And I'm at a four-way stop sign, and it's my turn to go, and they're next. And I go, and I kind of turn in front of them, and my window's down. And he goes, hey, what's up, SWAT? So I thought I was about to get pulled over, but it turned out. And I see these guys. They'll just give me the nod. And you guys shooting? All right, good. Well, stay safe. Was there a moment, like, when you got off the plane and you moved in? Like, when did you move to L.A.? How old were you? Uh, tw uh, let's see. I'm 22 years ago. I drove cross country. You drove? Okay. Yeah. Um, People have told me, you know, I think there's, there's people that a lot of people listen to the podcast, you know, like, Hey, you know, what's, what's that like? I've been told you, you have to have no choice. Like success is your only choice. And then it still doesn't guarantee anything, 
But those beginning year, were you invited out here? You'd done a few things. You're like, all right, I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to give it two years. I'm going to give it three years. I didn't what, put any time on it. My brother was a freshman, at, um, uh, a sophomore, I think, at UCLA, which helped. So I had to, he, he was here. And then one of my best friends from college is, uh, is Tay Diggs. And he was shooting um, a movie. He had just done How Stella Got a Groove Back. And he had like a couple movies lined up. So he was here. He's a New York guy. But so I had that and then a high school friend. So I came out here and I thought I had just done a little indie in Boston. I had a little bit of v, VHS tape. I had my McDonald's commercial and, and like a two scenes in this movie. And my first place I lived, the neighbor was, I was here a week and she's like, oh, my friend's in casting. I'll, I'll set you up. And I thought, oh, here we go. This is LA, right? Yeah. She literally picks the phone up on a Friday night in her apartment. We're kind of meeting people and she talks to this woman. She said, okay, good. She said, Monday, go meet this woman. So I do, and her name is Randy Hiller. She's now the head of um, Disney casting, but she was an independent casting director. I would go to her office. She sets me up with meetings and just was so sweet. And she just kind of took a liking to me and just had to do like this thought of, yeah, I trust me. This I, is it, amazing. Cause it's normally yeah. not like this at all. It's two years of, of fake lunches and hope, you know? No. And I, and you know, here I am at now I'm like getting a little back when then you could audition for everything. Once I got an agent, I mean, I auditioned for Will and Grace. Like, they just saw everybody back in the day. Now it's all, I think when movie stars came back to do television, it became much more of creating a list of who they want. But back, you know, you would just get auditions. I'd have three or four a day. So it was just quantity, quantity, quantity. And I was pounding the pavement. And at the same time, I'm driving Tay around town because he doesn't have a license because he grew up in New York. Then I'm driving him. I, the, one of the best stories I had is he got an audition for uh, Any Given Sunday. So I drive him down to USC's campus and we go on the field, the practice field, and it's Bill Bellamy, um, uh, Michael Jai White, who played Tyson in that HBO movie. Um, was Puff Jamie Foxx there? No, he wasn't. He had been, yeah. no, he hadn't got it yet, but it was Puffy. It was uh, Sean Combs was who they wanted as the quarterback. So he's up there. Oliver Stone's got a camera set up. George Seifert is there as the tech advisor. And Diddy can't throw. I'm on the sideline throwing balls to these actors. You've seen him dive. He's no. Diddy's not an athlete. I think no. it's. I think. I think we, it's okay. But he could. But and I'm throwing balls to the guys because no one else was around to throw, other than Elvis Gerbach and Joey Galloway. And so they're just now showing what they want the guys to do is a ten yard out. And he's like Joey, line up, and then I'm right there on the sideline, and. He goes, and you hear him like, and turns, and Gerbach just throws this, like, you could hear it. And all the actors were like, and my buddy Tay's like, I, what do, I mean, the ball came in at 100 miles an hour. So they all had, like, red chests after about three hours. But, yeah, I had some fun. Like, that kind of helped having someone that was had broken. Um, and it, it made me kind of, like, if he could do it, I could do it, because we were, we were kind of, we were friends in college and doing plays together. So that helped. And having my brother around and, and uh, that was a good experience. He called me his sophomore year. He had an apartment. He was in the drama department at UCLA. And I just broken up with a girl I moved here with. It's a Friday night at midnight. He's like, come over. We, we have a keg. It's a theater party. And I was like, I'm not going all the way over there to hang out with a bunch of 21. Click. No one does that in LA, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like knocking there. on his door before he'd hung up. Like, oh. Yeah, that's, that's the thing about LA. When I first lived here, I'd be like, yeah, I'll come visit you. I'll come visit you. And then I go, oh wait, no one visits anybody unless it's, it's within the same neighborhood. Um, right. 
which is totally fine. Like I'm okay with it. I'm not yeah. sad that I'm not driving up to Beverly Hills more often. Um, what's, what's the closest you came on the thing. That's like the big thing that you're um, like, Oh man, if I had gotten that. There, well, I'm trying to think of like, not what to I, say that SWAT isn't huge. No, so no, no. I, no. I know what you're saying though. Is there something I came close on? Um, God, that'll come to me. There's a couple, I mean one that, but it didn't go it's just an example of how tough things can be, but it's kind of answers your question, but it was called the playboy club. It was a TV series that lasted very quick, short, but I was up for it against the guy who got it, Eddie Cibrian and this other guy. And I, I auditioned like 10 times and then I went on a movie, a set and they filmed it. Like they really were looking for this character. And the director came up to me after the first 10 minutes and he goes, there was something you did the first time you came in. And I was like, I just lost this job to myself. Like I don't, I'm doing the same six pages now 30 times. I don't, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. Um, but there are a couple that I, that I've gone in for and got close and I, I just can't quite remember right now. Okay. Let me ask you this then. Maybe it'll come yeah. to you while I have ask you a different question. Was there a, you said something really important there. I think for anybody that, you know, when you're pursuing the tough stuff, all right, musician, you know, on air, your thing's far more impressive than me just sitting here chopping it up about sports. But, to be around Tay Diggs, it can almost seem insulting when you say, well, if you did it, I can do it, but that's not what you're doing. It, it be, feels more real. Like it smells real. It's yeah. like, wait, this is a, a guy I know that did this. So it's not to diminish your accomplishments. Exactly. Being around it and being around somebody who really did it is really inspiring. And now it also depends on where your headspace is. I mean, if you're an incredibly negative person, then you just turn it into something negative. But if you're positive about it, but I have to imagine even with that part, which I think is a cool part of the story, were there moments where you go, you know what, maybe I'm out of here. Like, did you almost quit? No, because I never, I, no, I never did because I, when I was telling you about the, the quantity, I had so many opportunities. I was getting close most every time I was never, the feedback was always, yeah, we like him. It's, it's just, you know, and I'd get called back and I'd meet. And you soon. believed it in this town. That's amazing. No, I did Because you know, if you go in and just meet, like if you're just the casting director and I read for just you, the next step is you're going to have another session the next day with the two guys who wrote it or the, the girl and the, and the, her, her sister who it's their story or, you know, and, and maybe a director. Now you do it again. Now they go, okay, we, yeah, we do like this kid. Let's bring him in for round three, which is in front of now network executives, the suits. So I was, that was happening consistently. So it wasn't a that they were saying, no, we like him. It was more, I was getting to that point. I just wasn't getting over that hump. And, but I knew I'd had stories of, there was one um, ABC show that I got close on called dirty, sexy money. And it was Peter Krause that got the role and he had done sports that I remember, I mean, he's awesome. Peter Krause is phenomenal. So he, he got it, but the guy who directed the show is Peter Horton, who was 30 something and he's a big television director. And he was telling me, Hey, hang in there. Patrick Dempsey, they didn't want him for, for, uh, um, Grey's Anatomy because he had done so many shows and pilots that hadn't had any success. So they were kind of, Nah, we're we're good with him. We don't. He's great, but we just don't want him. So that right there, like you're talking about McDreamy. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you hang in there when you know that you're putting out that you're doing your part. It, that that part will come. The next part. Last question: Who's the yeah. best basketball player of all the actors? Um, of the actors, well, yeah, you've been around. Yeah, I mean, there's one. Um, I got to give him props because so. Tim Daly, you know, uh, from, from Wings, 
his wow. son, Sam, is a, is a pal of mine. And he is legit. He played at Middlebury. <laughs> right? So he might have gone against you guys. Um, but he's a legit player. Um, Dean Kane was a, is, is a great – I mean, he was a great athlete. He played football, played for the Bills. Yeah, that's a good one because um, most guys, when it comes to basketball, we both know this. They're like, yeah, I play a little ball. Yeah. And you go, oh, wait. Not to say like you have to be awesome or something, but basketball basketball is a weird sport. And like guys that golf who know they suck kind of admit they suck. Yeah. I think basketball is the sport. The casual guy has the least self-awareness about right. where they're at. So that if somebody be like, oh, I'd like to play and you take it seriously in a pickup game, then they're like, whoa, what is what's going on here? And then, look, I've been in a couple pickup games where I go, oh, I don't know that I'm comfortable in this game because yeah. holy shit, like this is this is a completely different level. So, well, you know. I so, you know, we've talked a lot of basketball, but I grew up playing hockey and I still play out here. And that's been the, the, similar to the NBA league. This is a private skate that Jerry Bruckheimer, who's a huge hockey fan. Um, it's been going on for 20 something years and it's on Sundays. That's a really high level skate, but I've been playing long enough that I, I have no problem keeping up. But what's so fun is like last summer, Malcolm, Su um, PJ, geez, PK Subban comes out and skates with us. I presented at the NHL awards. So two weeks before he comes out, he hadn't skated since the end of the season. He comes out and plays with us after one shift. He comes off. He's like, Ooh, boy, I'm, 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 I'm sucking wind here. Let's go. Let's go. And then by five minutes in, he's flying and he's like chirping everybody and, and scoring and celebrating. This is with nobody watching. This is just 20 guys having a pickup. Um, but the next weekend I'm in Vegas presenting at the NHL awards and he's in the green room with Austin Matthews and he's like, Oh, Hey, what's up? Hey, Austin, this is my D partner, Jay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's right. I'm your defensive partner. That's a rare combo. Rarely does anybody pull off the basketball hockey combo, especially well, that's where we're basketball. From. I would admittedly be, I'm not that great. I just am a competitor and I see the game because I think because of hockey, I see sort of that what's going to happen thing. Like I defensively, I, I just know where a guy's going to, probably so I'll get get involved with steals and stuff like that and if I had the ball skills to run point I would but I definitely my skill set was knowing where guys are supposed to be and getting that ball before they've even got there kind of thing so that was my skill but I wasn't but I can shoot you know um you're just a taller Steve Nash yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's all the, my favorite part about your career might be that you finally had a little look a little bit older to like nail, nail all these auditions. It's, you were like, man, I wish I had aged yeah. prematurely. I, I mean, I was fighting the gray. In fact, I'm better off Ted. They asked me to make it. I had this gray patch here and they said, can you color it? And once I let it go, I was like, oh yeah, people respond. So yeah, exactly. I had to get older <laughs> to get more work. But, but that, the good thing is hopefully I'm this age for at least another while. Like, I'm, yeah, just ride this out. Where it, we, it, you age in tears. Like it's, I, I think I got this one for a little bit. I hope you do, too. Uh, anyway, check out SWAT, Jay Harrington, man. I, I really appreciate the time. Yeah, hey, Ryan, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that. I'm just a really normal guy. It was, it was cool to have a guy like that be that excited to come on the pod because he was, as soon as the name came up, and they were immediately like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. So that, that felt cool. So I hope you liked it. We're going to get to life advice here. This episode is brought to you by Royal Caribbean. What are you going to do for your next vacation? Beach, island hopping, hiking, a little culture? Choose Royal Caribbean and you can go on all the vacations at once. That's the point. You want to go to Greece? How about they get you there? 
everywhere else. I've looked at the Alaska packages. Alaska Inside Package, Alaska Experience Cruise, Vancouver, round trip, one way out of Seattle. They have it all. They make it easier for you with adventure at every stop. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Visit royalcaribbean.com to learn more. You want details? Fine. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Okay, I have a few life advices here. Let's see. Let's see. All right, let's get to this first one. Again, lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. All right, here we go. I'm a 24-year-old CPA accountant. I have been working at a large firm in Atlanta for the past year and a half. I took the job in Atlanta despite my dad owning a smaller firm in my hometown uh, that's located outside of the city. The primary reasons I took the Atlanta job was for prestige being able to build my own brand and being able to live in Atlanta. The only drawbacks are the hours, 50 plus hours a week, often slow horizontal growth, which means I won't be paid my worth until my early to mid thirties. Despite having a great experience so far, I still wonder what firm would be better long-term fit for me. My dad's firm would allow me to get a higher salary faster, be my work boss and work 30 to 35 hours a week. However, I would have to sacrifice working with coworkers I consider friends and will potentially have to deal with my dad's former employees that I assume I got the job because I got nepotism, which I would. Okay, let me just read that line again because it was good. I have to deal with my dad's former employees that assume I got the job because of nepotism, which was obviously the case. Um, but I'm also talented and deserving. Okay. Let me know what you think. Should I value, uh, what I should value when weighing the decision? Kyle, feel free to throw in a thought. I'm telling you the people, the Kyle fans are out there. Okay. This is, uh, this is a really good one is on the surface. And you think about nepotism, nobody's like, yeah, I mean, you know what's sick is nepotism. It's awesome when people get jobs because of who, um, they're related to. I, don't know that anybody would say, hey, nepotism's awesome. But if I were the product of nepotism, I'd probably look at it a little differently. Be like, hey, it's not that bad. Uh, the problem, nepotism has a few issues. Uh, first of all, when, when somebody's given a job or they're allowed to cut the line because of nepotism, there's just resentment. There's just resentment. And that would be, I get your point because you don't want to be in this situation where everybody's looking around at you, talking about you behind their back because they're going to. Uh, that's just what's going to happen to you. Um, the other problem with nepotism that you're not going to run into here, but we definitely ran into at ESPN would be if one person were given an opportunity, even if that person had done big stuff for the company and probably deserved a favor, then now the next guy was asking about his kid or there's somebody else saying, hey, can you hire my wife? Or... Now, we had some situations at ESPN where we, we were hiring people based on nepotism for somebody who didn't even work at the company. And you're like, wait, what's going on? And those are jobs. Like, those are jobs that are, that are going away. And, and guess what happens when the layoffs happen? Those people don't lose their jobs. And it ends up being like a lot of people getting pissed about it. And it, it's just kind of a weird thing to introduce into a work environment even if it's deserved, because I think in some cases you're like, hey, you know what? This person actually ended up being really good and they deserve this, even if they were able to cut the line a little bit and get their opportunity. So my my biggest thing was it was was as soon as you bring it in, then other people are like, wait, I deserve this. If this person got this, because that's what we all do. It kind of gets back to 
um, that thing we were talking about with the HOA. We're like, how come that guy bought? Why does he have a shed? What if I want a shed? Now the next thing you know, the HOA is like, are we going to have 60 something sheds? By the way, we had some great HOA feedback. We appreciate the HOA people that are out there that, that reached out. We had a couple guys that worked for HOAs that were like, yep, nailed it. And they want our guy to go back at them and ask for the minutes from the meeting, which are legally <laughs> yeah. bound to have those minutes. You have to have minutes. Minutes are recorded notes. I loved when I first learned the term minutes. I just thought it was hilarious it was a long time ago. But yes, check our guy for the, sh- the, the shed build. Ask the HOA for their minutes from the meeting of when they approved your shed. Done. Case closed. You know what I'm talking about here? All right. So back to our nepotism case here. You were at this small firm. It is your dad's firm. And this isn't going to be the same thing as like a big corporate deal where all of a sudden some kid's an investment banker at 22 out of Colgate, right? You're not going to have to worry about that. I'd also say this for people that are worried about nepotism and being the product of nepotism in positions to succeed because of it. At the end of the day, who fucking cares, man? This stuff is hard enough as it is. So if I had a father who was a GM of a basketball team and I came up through scouting, I would take the job because it's an awesome job. And if it were something I wanted to do, I'm not going to turn down the amazing opportunity because my dad or my mom is able to place me in something where I have this advantage. So yes, nepotism sucks, except for when I can benefit from it. So yeah, I know people are going to talk shit about me, but I'm not going to turn down the job so that everybody knows that I'm, I'm for the common man. You know, on this case, I, I don't know that any of us should be turning down advantages. I'm talking to this one uh, person right now. Their father has an incredible job, an incredible career. And the guy's like, I don't know if I really want to do that because of nepotism. And I'm like, I don't know. Why? Like, you know, you'd be on the path for an amazing career and an amazing life. And it's in a, in a area that interests you. So it's noble to be concerned about it. The rest of us that are are turned off by it, like you don't owe us anything. You don't. So you take the advantage. Again, especially when it's this really hard stuff. Now, when we're talking about just the accounting part of this, it's your father's company. Your life is going to be easier. You said you're friends with these coworkers. So, and as far as like the employers and the clients, like this is kind of how it works. When I was going to become a general contractor, Guess what was going to happen? I was going to work for my father. I was going to learn about pricing out stuff. I was going to learn about working with subs. I was going to get my license. I was going to do all these things. I was packed up and ready to go home and do it because I wasn't going to get on the air. And then magically that night, I ran into a show, uh, the radio station manager. The night I stopped and had a cheeseburger before I was going to catch the last boat home in Boston, I was packed up. And then the guy was like, you have a meeting tomorrow with me. And I'll tell that story another time. I told it before. But I was ready to go. And the only reason I was going to do that is because I was like, hey, look, I can eventually be my own boss. I know I'll like that better than working for somebody else. I kind of like the outdoor thing. I kind of like, you know, the the idea of of building something and finishing a project and then moving on to the next one. And if I can put together enough money that maybe I can build my own house one day or I can get involved in the real estate side of this, like it's not a bad thing. It's to become a general contractor, to me, I still sometimes think about it. Like, I, I know I would like it. But the only reason I was going to get a head start at all, it's not like my father had this massive company. He would just, you know, build one house at a time, basically. And I, you know, I, I just, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. You know, I'd had a degree. I knew I couldn't work in an office. And so I was going to do it. And you know what? I wasn't going to apologize to anybody in the work site. And I know the guys running the Bobcat and the Sheet Rockers, anybody else. I actually think those guys still would talk shit about me. But I don't care. Like, fuck them. Seriously, 
So anyone listening to this that's worried about the nepotism part of it, you can sit there and not take advantage of it and struggle, or you can take advantage of it, but bust your ass, you know, put in the work, put in the work. And eventually when you put in the work and you do a good job, they can say, hey, this person got a head start because of who they were and who they related to, but the person actually deserves a job. And if you deserve the job and produce, then none of that's going to matter in a few years. Now, the only thing I would ask you is like, are you cool not living downtown Atlanta because you're younger? It sounds like you don't care. And if you don't care, that's that's great. If you already want to move back to your hometown, you're going to be further away from the city. Um, but I, I personally look at this and, and think, it's it's actually kind of cool that you're worried about it, but I would I would stop worrying about it. There's nothing you can do about it. And if you're going to kick ass and be successful, then people won't worry about this in a few years. They won't. And by the way, as far as the customers, like they may like it way better that you're taking over the firm and years from now, you know, you you continue this business and you have an in with these people because they're like, oh, it's, you know, so-and-so's son is running it and he's really smart and he's good at this. Unless you're lying to us and you're a disaster, which I don't think I don't think you would do that. Kyle, anything to add there? No, I mean, you still got to do the job. Like I was driving trucks and cutting grass and I got hired to park cars and get coffee. You still have to do the job, you know? Uh, it's really up to you what you do with it. If you suck, like people are going to know. It's a fact. There you go. Well said. Okay. Um, hey, this one is, this is one's important, okay? And I, I don't know if this guy's going to like everything I have to say here, but he emailed us. Okay. His question starts with this. Who's the bigger asshole in the below situation? My fake name is John and I work at a smallish wealth management company that has around 40 people. So 40 employees. I'm 31 on the cusp of getting my own clients, but still working as a support person for two other advisors, one being the CEO himself. All right. So for those that don't understand how this works, he's not going out and finding his own clients and and managing their money. Right. He's working with somebody else who has their clients. He's in support of them. So at this point right now, and I don't know, 31 for some people in a smaller house, maybe that's older, maybe 31 on the cusp of getting his own clients. As he says, that's a perfect gauge. I mean, each each firm is different. There's no set of rules. There's no look, all of our all of our schedules are different, even though we don't like that. Okay. So just I wanted everybody else to be able to follow along with this. All right. Because of this, I feel somewhat stressed out and often feel like I don't have time of the day to complete all my tasks. Our firm has a woman in HR. Her fake name is Jane, who's in her late 30s. Originally, I got along fine with Jane, but recently she's gone to our CEO and complained about me on a few different things. I just had my year-end review and these things came up that obviously Jane complained about. I get the feeling my CEO doesn't really care about these things, but is annoyed that he's even had to discuss them and therefore is probably somewhat annoyed with me. That's definitely true. The last line is, I, without even reading any more of this, yes, your CEO is annoyed that HR is complaining about you, even if he thinks that the complaints are stupid. So yeah, dicey. Not the end of the world, but not something you want to be doing. Generally, my review was overall very good. In 2020, I achieved a financial designation that's helped me uh, help give me credibility. Signed up, what is this, an interview? Signed up my first client completely on my own. Okay, there you go. Was given a $10,000 raise. Uh, they gave me some good constructive criticism. I got to tell you, the raise for 10 grand in a management company with 40 people, that's, I don't know that that's a great sign. Um, but again, maybe maybe I don't know what's going on. All right, so they gave me some uh, constructive criticism on how to improve communication with clients and also gave me a ton of compliments on my work ethic and effort. I'm going to jump in here. Were the criticisms far more specific than the compliments? Because that's a bad sign, all right? Because remember these management books and these leadership people, the, they'll be like, you know, make sure you always end on a positive. Like if you got a review and be like, you made no sales this year and we think 
you're cheating on your wife or their secretary, but you're always very positive with coworkers. All right. That would be, that would be an example of like, wait, one good, one bad. No, 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 no. All right. One of my bosses said I should consider more work-life balance and make sure to use more of my vacation time. I do have a fiance and we just moved into a house together. That's good. I was worried about that. You have a fiance, you know, just so everybody knows, still working. Um, we just moved into a house together, so I have some work-life balance, but planning a wedding and moving has been stressful as well, obviously. The problem is the HR woman complained about me doing a few different things. Okay, so he has three complaints here that he's sharing with us, so I, I appreciate the detail on this. First, we have a temperature check for COVID when we enter the office each morning. We take our own temperatures and sign a form to verify our temperatures that if they're not too high. I fail to do the temp check probably about once every two weeks. My reason is there are two elevators in the building, one in the front, one in the back. I used to park in the back and use the elevator in the back because my car has been dinged while parking in the front. We share an office with the doctor's office, which has old people coming in and out all the time. All right, old people open their cars, smashing you. This is science. It's true. Sorry to the old people listening, but it just happens. You do it all the time. Also, my office is right next to the elevator in the back, so it's easy access. The temperature check station is near the front elevator. And I don't see it when I get to the back of the elevator. I'm not an anti-mask or anti-COVID person, but just out of sight, out of mind type thing. I offer to pay for a separate temperature check station myself and set it up in the back so that I don't forget. HR said, we have a second thermometer, but I'm not going to do that because then I would have to walk to the other end of the hall to pick up the check-in sheet each morning just for you. Her office is right near the temperature check station in the front. Okay, this is, this is concerning. When I would forget, she would walk down to my office to complain that I failed to check in and I would immediately apologize and do the check-in. Honestly, I'm generally in a rush to start working at 730 and my mind isn't on the temp check. Finally, she went to the CEO to complain and the CEO told me I can't park in the back anymore. He acknowledged that while it's unfair and stupid, it's um, if I forget to do temp checks, then people will question whether I can handle clients. Valid point, but I thought Jane made no effort to work with me on the situation and it could have been resolved in a different way. That whole thing is concerning. So I don't know if I attack that now or wait. Let's wait. We'll keep reading. Second, she said I print documents and leave them on the printer without picking them up. I admit to having done this and sometimes leave the document on the printer for a couple hours. Generally, it never lasts the whole day, although I'm sure this has happened. When we have a lot of printers in our we have a lot of printers in our office and almost everyone is guilty of the same crime. I found other things on the printer and never complained about it. I generally just remove the papers from the actual printer, put them next to the printer, which is what most people in our office do. Third, every quarter we send out bound books that contain the client's investment summaries. The advisor I work for generally waits until the last minute to get these reports done, then asks that I bind them and send them out via UPS. This advisor sat in my review and acknowledged this very fact. Jane has complained that I don't put the binding supplies away when I'm done. They're left in a common area, but don't affect anyone else's ability to be productive. It's not like she needs the space to complete her work or anything like that. They are out of the way. This has definitely happened before, but I'm rushing to get the report sent out door by UPS pickup time at 430 and often end up driving to the UPS store directly at 530 because we missed the 430 pickup time. I don't know if I'm right or wrong on this, but if somebody's doing investment summaries, I'd imagine they'd want to wait till the very last minute on those. I'm So I know that that's probably just the reality of it. I've almost always cleaned up the next day or later that night. I've come back to the office at 6.30 and put the stuff away before. Basically, I feel like she's taken real steps to affect my career and my income for trivial things. She also leaves every day at 4.30, doesn't work with clients, and in my opinion, has an easy job. She does do some real work billing, um, but is responsible for things like arranging our health insurance plan, holiday calendar, pizza parties, and other things that don't pay the bills. I feel like I'm working way harder than her to bring in revenue and feel like she has an administrative type job that doesn't produce any revenue for the firm. You're right, but your whole tone in that is bad. Um, that's a problem. 
and we're going to address all these. I've acknowledged that it doesn't matter what I think about these things anymore, and I have to do better now that they've been documented in my review, and the CEO has given me direction I must follow. However, I've completely ghosted Jane in small talk communication. If she has a business question or needs something from me, I respond in a polite manner. However, she says hi to me in the hallway. I just nod and keep walking. Cool. Um, we don't see each other much. Remember, we were on opposite sides of the building. I recognize there are some asshole traits, although nothing as bad as littering. But I do feel uh, like she's the bigger asshole and has done things to a coworker that I would never do. Do you agree? Who is the bigger asshole? Okay. Uh, a lot here. The first thing is handle the fucking COVID check-in. All right. You're 31. This is, this is really stupid. Like you, you look like an asshole on this one. I get you show up to work. You're focused. I could be that way when I was at ESPN, walk in the doors. Hey, I've got a show to do today. And that was every day. And all I cared about was the show, the show, the show. And somebody say, hey, can you talk to an affiliate here? Hey, I want to ask you. I'd be like, no, you have to leave me alone. I have this amazing Cincinnati Bengals segment that I'm working out in my head. I'm going to be in the office. Nobody, nobody bother me. But sometimes you have to talk to the affiliate. Sometimes you have to do the things that you don't necessarily want to do. And in this case, we're talking about the safety of the workplace, that you're lucky it's even open and people still have jobs. Take your fucking temperature and do the check-in sheet. And the fact that you say in the email that you forget maybe once every two weeks probably means you forget more. And you already know this. You already know this. But the second you take some responsibility, you immediately turn it back onto this HR person for telling on you. Now, let's examine the HR part of this. We have HR listeners. Um, some HR people are amazing. Some are not. Guess what? Just like everything else. There are times where I've worked with people where I felt like, is this person just bored? Is this person bored? And now they're trying to find, like we had somebody in PR who I knew didn't like me and someone, something would come up every now and then. And I'd be like, this person's making this a bigger deal because this is their job and they're trying to seem important. And you know what? Maybe that's the case, but that's her job and it's not your job. So her job is to make sure you do this and you don't do it. And now she told the CEO and you're right. The CEO is worried about managing millions of dollars, I imagine, for a bunch of different clients. And as soon as he fucks up something, he's dealing with the real stress of people being mad at him and potentially firing him as the money manager. And you at 31 can't figure out how to just make sure you check your temperature every fucking morning. Set an alarm on your phone. Temp check, you know, 725. If you pull in, if you walk in the doors every day at 730, have your alarm every day. Have an alarm that goes off that says temp check 725. I I'm, I totally get how focused you are and all that kind of stuff, but you're costing yourself like social equity with the rest of the workforce because you're the guy that doesn't take his temperature all the time, okay? And you're the guy that like, as soon as you say it's stupid now, I can't park in the back. Well, you're the one that fucked it up. You're the one that fucked it up. And if the CEO, it's cool. It sounds like you actually have a cool CEO who's saying, hey, yeah, I know it's kind of stupid, but whatever. Because you know what he wants to do? Manage people's money, grow the business, not screw up, not cost clients hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars. You know what he doesn't want to do is hear about the 31-year-old guy who can't take his fucking COVID temperature. All right? That goes without saying, and you already know this stuff. Now, the problem is like, hey, I print stuff, and then she gets mad. I'm with you. That's stupid. Why get mad? Why can't you? Do but now you're on her hit list. All right. So now every time you do something stupid, you've become the person that she's going to tell on, which sucks. And you maybe are not fully deserving of that. But guess what? Just pick up your pages. And the reason why I'm saying pick up your pages is because your third complaint about the binder. You're like, you know, I usually put them back. This is a bad sentence, man. 
The advisor sat in on my review, acknowledged the fact Jane's complained that I don't put the binding supplies away when I'm done. They're left in a common area, but don't affect anyone else's ability to be, be productive. You're probably right. They just want you to put them away, man. They just want you to put them away. It's not like she needs the space to complete her work or anything like that. So that that makes me worry that maybe maybe you are a bit of an asshole. Like, seriously. Like, you're not wrong that the binding equipment doesn't impact her day, but that you care this much about whether or not, it, just, just put it away. Just put it away. <laughs> you know? And I'm not telling you I've always been perfect. I'm not telling you that I haven't had moments. I remember when I was at Trenton, I used to print out every single page. And like, oh, you're printing out a lot of pages. And I'd be like, are you serious, dude? Are you serious? But then I thought, why? And I didn't feel, I didn't recognize this at the time. I didn't get it until years later. But I was like, why would I want to fight that fight? Just print out printless stuff. Or if I'm printing stuff, make sure I get it immediately so it never sits there so no one can see all of these pages that I'm printing out to do show prep for an Eastern League game. <laughs> I think there's a bigger thing here. So let's fix it. Let's fix it. Because now, whatever you're doing, and now when she's saying hi, and you're not saying hi back because you're mad at her, and you might be right about a bunch of these different things, but the COVID one is inexcusable, and you know it. Repair. Repair this. Fix this. You're obviously a very smart guy. You're on the cusp of something great here uh, by getting your own clients, right? You're you, you, you haven't complained once about the job except for the HR part of this. So I assume that you really like this and you're into it. And I, again, I can tell you're smart and you have a fiance. So I, you know, there were parts of this where I go, Hey, he's got the fiance. If he were by himself, I go, is he socially like off and, and doesn't realize this, but you're actually aware of the things that you're doing wrong, but you're justifying them a little bit too much. And then you're redirecting the blame where it's like, you don't want to take hundred percent of the blame because you're annoyed that the other person's annoyed. And again, I'm not telling you that you're not necessarily wrong. Like I don't want to be told on for not putting stuff away, but that wouldn't happen to me because I was on TV. Um, I would, I would do this. <sighs> They've invested time into you. They've, they've invested whatever their resources are to make sure that you're going to be somebody that can eventually manage money and get your own clients, right? As you said, you're right on the cusp of that. You cannot sacrifice that. And you don't want to be looking for a job right now either, all right? It sounds like your CEO likes you and is on your side. I would do this. I would, and this is, this doesn't even have to be, it sounds like you like your CEO, so this would be genuine. The power of a written letter is unbelievable. Nobody does it anymore. I would over the break, write a letter out to him and take ownership of this stuff and go, hey, look, the COVID thing is inexcusable. It's because I actually care. Like, no, nah, don't do that. I care too much thing. But it's going to, you know, when I come into work, I just lock in. I can't believe I put you in a position where anyone would wonder about me as a client relation person. I totally get where you're coming from. I want to hit the reset button and put some of the stuff behind me. And I'm going to reach out to Jane and HR just so you know. All right. And don't blame anybody else, even if it's times like I would, I would at work and my thing's a little different because if a radio show was getting something and I wasn't getting something and I felt like we were on the same playing field, I'd be like, you guys are gonna be kidding me. And look, ESPN it, towards the end, they were just not into your boy's show. I think me seven months after Canel being gone and just figuring it every, every day without any budget and any plan whatsoever, wasn't exactly like the greatest position to be in. And I'd look at another show and go, well, Hey, what's going on there? But a lot of times you kind of can't do that. You you can't be sitting there. Well, hey, Jane, she leaves at 430. Who gives a fuck? She's in HR. You decided to make money. If you want to leave at 430, go get an HR job. You know what I'm saying? 
So who cares? Who cares what her day is or isn't? Who cares that she's not bringing money in? I don't like that you said that either because you already know the differences. You chose a path that's going to be harder and more rewarding. She chose a different path. So respect her path. And who cares? Who cares when she leaves? All right. It doesn't matter. You're not, you're not even competing for the same things, but now she's messing with you. So then I would reach out to Jing and go, look, I need to do a better job and I need to do a better job understanding what your day is like and what your challenges are. And honestly, dude, you don't even need to believe this part of it. What you need to do is kind of a small office reset where you reach out to the CEO, explain these things, take ownership for it, going to move on and stop being a tough guy in the hallway with Jane. Write her a letter and go, even though I didn't understand it at the time, I understand that you have a job to do and I am going to be respectful of that. I want to have a different dialogue. I want to hit the reset button. If I'm doing something that you don't like, reach out to me and I, I let's come up with a solution immediately. And fucking 2021, Daytona Beach, who's in? All right, that's it. There you go. Problem solved. So I don't, you know, I know it's a Friday and I don't want this to fuck up your weekend, but, um, you know, you just need to hear from somebody because clearly no one else has said it to you at this point. That's a podcast. And it's on Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network. Please subscribe. Get the word out. The Rosillo Pod right here with Kyle. <laughs> Nephew Kyle. Nice. Every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. By the way, NBA, big time, big time NBA preview uh, coming up Monday with Bill Simmons in house. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans at Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com.